VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, January the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's do it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26. So much ballyhoo went into the forecast yesterday for the first bit of winter storm action here on the Avalon Peninsula. And it turned out to be the storm that wasn't. So that's okay by me. But you know full well that some of the local meteorologists are taking some pretty heavy swats. Now, of course, when we have a forecast that looks like it's a good idea to close the schools and or government offices and or some private companies will close their doors. You know, it does have some complications when the forecast isn't accurate. I'm not going to go after any meteorologists because I can't imagine how difficult that job is, given the fact that the conditions can change so quickly. For instance, 36 hours prior to yesterday's forecasted storm, it looked like it was going to be a pretty big deal. And then when we woke up yesterday morning, it tracked a little further east. Consequently, the snowfall amounts were down. I don't know, we got about, what, 10 centimeters today? Is that what you just told me? So we got about 10 when we thought there was about 25. The big problem would come is if they forecasted 10 and we got 30. So that's where the big problems would uh, manifest themselves. But So the storm was really not that big a deal. But it did come with some complications for snow clearing, so I'm told, in certain pockets here in the northeast Avalon. But anyway, it wasn't that big a deal, which I think is a pretty good thing. You want to talk about it, let's go. All right, so opening day at Marble Mountain. There's going to be a combination of man-made snow and natural snow. It's going to be firm and fast. So if you're going to be taken to the hill, the first run is at 10 a.m. this morning. Whether you're on the skis or on a snowboard, if you want to send along your reaction to what the conditions are like at Marble Mountain, of course, they had it open over the summer. But getting back to what they do best is to operate the winter season. Apparently, the passes, the sale of passes is up, which is a good thing. They've created a weekend ski pass for those who are unable to get to the hill during the weekday so I'm sure that's going to be an attractive option and I'm looking forward to hopefully getting out for a couple of runs sometime this winter myself but good luck to all the crowd operating it's going to be by the time they get fully staffed up about 100 people working at the hill and of course long comes the conversation about government's role in the operations of Marble Mountain which is contentious and controversial in some corners but you want to talk about it you know what to do what a night for Dawson Mercer Bay Roberts native of course playing for the New Jersey Devils it was his first multi-point, multi-goal game and his first three-point night in the National Hockey League. He's having a pretty great season, I have to say. I like watching him. And both his goals last night were really dogged, uh, head hard to the net. A uh, real beauty for his second goal of the night and the winner. So congratulations, Dawson. That's a big deal, man. Two goals on the night, add an assist for a three-point night. And there you go. Just a couple of quick notes. I, I found this interesting. So if you watch the World Juniors, you heard a lot of the Fables rendition of Heave Away because it was Canada's goal song, and they scored a lot of goals. It hit number one on Apple's charts, which is pretty cool, the Fables version of. But I saw this on social media. It was posted by member of the Order of Canada, iconic local musician Kelly Russell. And he's talking about where he first heard Heave Away. It's been very much attached to the Fables and Fair Ball. It was their rendition that was played in Halifax and in Moncton for the World Juniors. But here's what he goes on to say. He says, but this old sea shanty has a much deeper history. So where did the Fables get the song? Possibly from the Punters, another local band, Larry Foley, 
and the Boys, who recorded a full year before the Fables. Where did the Punters get it? Probably from Jim Payne and Kelly Russell himself, who performed it regularly during the 1980s. Where did they get it? He says his recollection is hazy, but it's probably from Anita Best, but I'm not sure. And so where did she learn it? I first heard the song, says Kelly Russell, in a 1972 album by Roger McGuinn, who of course was the lead man for the Birds, frontman. Uh, there's also some other artists who have recorded the song over the years. So here's a couple of uh, renditions that he points to. In 1957, it was recorded as Heave Away My Johnny by English folk singers A.L. Lloyd and Evan McCall. In 1964, English folk singer Lou Killen sang Heave Away My Johnny in a topic of anthology of sea songs and shanties. In 1968, it was recorded as Heave Away My Johnny by Irish folk group the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Macon. 1997, recorded as Come Get Your Duds in Order, Heave Away, by Canadian Celtic rock group The Punters, and in 1998, recorded as Heave Away by the Canadian Celtic rock group The Fables on their debut album, Tear the House Down. So it has made its rounds. There were some pretty iconic names there. And it landed on The Fables, and of course, they're getting a lot of the attention. But that's an interesting post from Kelly. Maybe if you're listening this morning, Kelly, give us a shout. Kelly's also a member of the Order of Canada. Did I say that in the introduction? Maybe. Don't know. All right, on the hockey front, congratulations to James Melindy. It's a cool tradition and quite the honor, regardless of what set of rafters you see your jersey flying in. But James Melindy's jersey is going to be retired in the Ghouls Arena. So Melindy played for Canada in the under-17s. He played in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. He played in the American Hockey League. A couple of preseason games in the National Hockey League. And, of course, now the captain of the Newfoundland Growlers. And his jersey is hitting the rafters, which is pretty cool stuff. And I told you about this story where they're building a new rink alongside the elementary school in Clarenville. It's going to be called the Myra Moore Memorial Rink. And, of course, brought to bear by her husband, Wendell. Now, Myra passed away in 2021 at the age of 75, and she loved the sound of the children having fun and the laughter, what have you. The initial picture of the rink, which was just being developed, and the only picture I've seen, looks pretty cool. So today, if there's a completed version of the Myra Moore Memorial Rink, I'd love to see a picture of it. And I suppose that's it. I do love the labor of love that is creating and maintaining a backyard rink. So if you've got one in action, do me a favor for my own my own purposes is uh, to have a look at your picture of your backyard rink. Just send it along to openlineofiosim.com. Be happy to have a look at it. Okay. So we talk about healthcare shortages, but let's talk about it this morning as it pertains to our pets and access to veterinary services. Apparently, there's a real shortage of vets as well. So the demand is huge, the burnout is real, and so maybe access to those types of vet services are not as easily accessible and available as they were in years past. Now, Dr. Maggie Brown-Burry, who's been generous enough with her time on this program, she's covering some of the shortages when a vet gets sick or simply takes time off, and they say the burnout due to high demand and shortages is creating the same problem we see in the world of healthcare workers dealing with human beings. She goes on to say, you can't make a vet clinic magically appear. And so if you're experiencing those shortages, and this is not a slight at any vet, but there's long been concerns with just how expensive it is to get coverage at a veterinary clinic. So Dr. Reggie Brown-Burry, if you're around and want to tell us, paint a clearer picture for me about what the shortages look like, happy to have you on the program. And sticking with animal care. Good morning to the folks at Happy Valley Goose Bay's SBCA. They are stretched to the max. Over a 24-hour period, the number of dogs housed at the Happy Valley Goose Bay SPCA went from 25 to 60. 
they're having to turn away people. So there's a couple of examples where they had reports of puppies crying under the deck along one house or another. So two moms and some 18 pups have been brought in. They're not even really sure which pups belong to which mother. So they have a shortage of foster care homes in the region. They're trying to organize, like they did last year, a flight to Gander and or St. John's with some of these animals so that they can be fostered. They just don't have the capability or the capacity right now in Happy Valley Goose Bay. So Bonnie Learning and her team, they've got their hands full. And if you want to join us this morning, Bonnie, I think Dave's going to reach out to you and hopefully we can connect with you. I know he must be seriously busy. But they're unable to conduct that fundraising flight to Gander St. John's. So they're actually asking locals not only to potentially foster one of these dogs, but they're asking if you're traveling from the town to the island, Maybe, and with their assistance, you can take one of the dogs with them. So as we talked yesterday, and rightfully so, about the vulnerable population and what happens during these cold winter months, same thing I think could be said for animals, and especially when the looks like the shelters have been at capacity for quite some time here, not only Labrador, but certain stories emanating from the island as well, but that's a big whopping increase in the number of dogs at the SPCA from 25 to 60 in 24 hours. Anyway, we can talk about that if you're into it. All right. I heard Brian Callahan in the VOCM newscast talking about Monday being the deadline for a vetted, approved buyer to come forward to take over, potentially take over operations at the St. Lawrence Floor Spire Mine. You know, this has been a long process. It is a big deal for folks in the area. They employ hundreds of people at the mine. The product is in high demand. They do indeed have some infrastructure deficits that make it maybe not as attractive as it might be had they have a more modernized facility for loading and offloading, for instance. But I'm sure if you're in the area, whether you're directly employed by that uh, mine or not, this is going to be a big deal. Now, there was a uh, bidder that came forward, made their initial down payment, but did not complete the down payment process, and consequently, that deal went off the table. It's still possible that that deal, that bidder, gets approved. We don't know if there's going to be someone come forward to renew operations at the Floresparra Mine, which is sitting in a cold aisle versus a warm aisle, which, of course, also uh, lends itself to whether or not it's attractive to a buyer. So it could be liquidated, it could be back in operation, but the deadline is quickly approaching. And if you want to take it on, especially if you're in the region, let's do it. But in the mining sector, the opportunities are massive. Now, when we talk about the fact that Canada is the only first world democratically led country on the face of the earth with all of the critical minerals required for laptop batteries, cell phone batteries, electric vehicle batteries. It doesn't matter if you're interested in electric vehicles. The fact of the matter is much of the world is, and we've got the minerals. So the provincial and the federal government, they both made an announcement there prior to Christmas. You know, to the tune of $5.2 million over the next three years from the federal government, $4.6 million from the provincial government, mostly to help with junior exploration assistance programs. You know, the question has been asked of me and others is if it's so attractive and the opportunities are so massive, why is there a need for government interjection, injection of money? Okay, some of the junior operations, they probably do need a leg up. But in 2022, there was some $5.4 billion in mineral shipments, $189 million in exploration, spent on exploration, and employment of approximately 8,800 person years. So the question for me would be, if we have the minerals, and Canada has done not a great job on this front over the years, and in this province, I think the same can be said, is we have the coveted natural resources, but have we maximized the opportunity from them? So it's one thing to explore, 
another to produce, another to process, another step to manufacture, and then distribute. So we could indeed look at a supply chain right here domestically, and maybe even in this province, from all the way through the exploration through the final product. Do we have the capacity? Do we have the the workforce, do we have the watch for investors to come here and make sure that they can explore and all of a sudden we're shipping out batteries to the rest of the world versus what we've done far too often is ship a lot of raw material elsewhere and then buy the batteries back from someone else. So there might be some big opportunities there and I'm bullish on the mining sector and nothing is perfectly environmentally green. We know that to be true. There's all sorts of complications with mining. You know, even when people talk about the future for fossil fuels, what have you, there is not a green footprint coming from the mining sector, but there's huge opportunities available. All right, let's move uh, back into healthcare, this time for human beings. Okay, so the province is being led by Minister Tom Osborne on a junket to Ireland. They're going to visit four cities in six days in an effort to recruit healthcare workers. The concern coming from some corners, including from the NDP leader Jim Din, is that there's a little bit of irony associated with it, and here's why. Some of the concerns in the healthcare system for staffing shortages, burnout, rate of pay, are very similar in Ireland as they are here. So what makes Newfoundland and Labrador an attractive place for any of these healthcare workers to come to, to set up shop, and to be part of the system? It's a fair question being posed in some corners. Here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. So whether it be in India, Ireland, or wherever else, like even in the province of Ontario, at this moment in time, they've been asked to disclose just how many nurses, personal support workers, and physicians the province needs. The government refused to do so, saying that it could harm the economy, whatever that means. But here's the question. Should we not have some stated goals, some benchmarks, to evaluate whether or not recruitment efforts in India or in Ireland are, have been worthwhile, have been valuable? You know, there's no downside, I don't think, for setting a target, because if we have no way to measure it, then we could repeat what might end up being a financial mistake. Now, if they come home with 100 nurses, that's a good thing. There's some 600 vacancies for registered nurses here in the province. But if we don't have anything to measure it by, then who's to say whether or not it's a good idea, a bad idea, a worthwhile initiative, or a complete waste of time? So I get it. Being aggressive, trying to do what we can to fill up some of the gaps, absolutely has to be done but how do you how do you work all the angles at the same time aggressively recruit abroad all the while dealing with what has been as big a problem as recruitment is the retention issue so can they be done should they be done concurrently do we have to get our house in order so to speak before we can pitch it as an attractive place to work whether it be for personal care worker or an LPN a nurse practitioner or a doctor a registered nurse whatever the case may be so how do we approach this pragmatically? But of course, the key for retention here is, you know, to address some of the issues brought forward by the healthcare workers in the work-life balance, whatever the case may be, and rate of pay. Like if, if you come from Ireland and it's all about salary, we can offer you more than you're getting paid currently on the Emerald Isle. What's to stop you from looking to another province upon arrival, knowing that you can maybe make more as a registered nurse in another province in Canada, but we did all the legwork and we spent all the money. So uh, it's not to say it's not a good idea, but it's, it's maybe not as great an idea as it might be if we had some stated goals and whether or not we hit them. And, and if we don't, what's another approach to keep our foot in the Irish pie 
to keep Newfoundland and Labrador on their map. Of course, there's cultural overlap, overlaps. They'll be familiar with this province and this country. There's lots of good reasons to want to come to this province, in my personal opinion. But if we don't measure it, how are we supposed to talk about it? All right, a uh, couple of quickies here. Looking forward to hearing from someone from Gander and area, given the obstetrics issue. So... Patients are being diverted to Grand Falls, Windsor. And that comes with a big complication, not only for folks who are living in Gander proper, but for other parts of the area where now they're going to have to travel even further to get to Grand Falls, Windsor for the treatment. And that'd be folks, for instance, in uh, Glovertown or Musgrave Harbor or Wesleyville. A lot of hours on the road, and during the winter season, we know that becomes even more co- even more complicated and potentially perilous. So all of this has kind of been stalled because they had a f- committee formed, a steering committee, to talk about the location of the obstetric services in Central. But that committee, as far as I can tell, is no longer in action. It seems to me that they're waiting for the Provincial Health Authority to become one versus the four that are in operation today. So lots of worries in the area. And Gander's growing in population. You know, this is not to besmirch the decision to be in Grand Falls, Windsor. I don't live out there. But if we're making decisions based on population base, then the argument for Gander is a strong one. So whether or not you're in Grand Falls, Windsor, Gander, Wesleyville, Musgrave Harbor, or anywhere out there that you'll be impacted by this, we're happy to have you on the show today. And we see the story that the some 100 paramedics, ambulance operators, and dispatchers represented by the Teamsters, they have started their job action, a work to rule. What exactly that looks like, we'll try to get Hubert Daw, the business manager, on for that particular local to give us an idea exactly what folks will see. He says, just to paraphrase, not to put words in his mouth, you won't see a big change in paramedic services. They might not be wearing the uniform you're familiar with. They may be handing out information pamphlets uh, describing their concerns, whether it be about rate of pay, and that's the number one thing is the rate of pay. But there's a big disconnect between the public and the private offerings here, and the province has dragged its feet for years trying to settle this. So, Mr. Daw, if you're out there and you want to talk this morning, we're happy to have you on and give this some more attention. Another quick one on health care, and this one mental health. People are quick to condemn the public relations campaign that really felt like a public relations campaign when Bell was involved with Let's Talk Day. So this year, it's not going to be a matter of having to hashtag Bell Let's Talk to get five cents per to come up with the annual donation coming from Bell, the company. And yes, look, I get it. Giving them some free publicity is exactly what they want, even though there might be some people at leadership in Bell that really have this as a close-to-their-heart want to discuss and want to donate to. But this year, they're going to make a donation of $10 million with no big activity on January the 25th. $10 million is actually more than they've ever donated in a single year. Last year, there was 165 million times online where people uh, hashtagged Let's Talk, and that resulted in $8.2 million. They've been at it since 2010, and over the course of the 13 years, about $130 million has gone to mental health organizations and services. So I get it. I'm not here to pump their tires, but let's... Even if we just take it upon ourselves, not only on January 25th, but there's been some good progress regarding public discourse and conversation, not necessarily the increase in long-term access or what have you for mental health care services, but I just feel like, and of course, it's, I'm just talking for, as one person, it feels like we're doing a bit of a better job talking about mental health and understanding mental health services, understanding the difference between mental health, mental illness, mental wellness. So even if the 25th comes and goes without a big load of hashtags trying to raise money, 
let's keep the conversation going because I like to think it's helping. But folks who are in the system and are some of the mental health advocates, you'd be much better positioned to tell us exactly whether or not we're making any forward strides. But anyway, the Bells made the decision for a one-time $10 million donation this year. All right, I wanted to talk about a couple of government issues, uh, federal government issues, but we had Minister Derek Bragg on yesterday talk about the fact that there's going to be some virtual consultations, and people can go to EngageNL's website to talk about potential amendments to the Crown Lands issue, squatters' rights, and amendments to the Lands Act. You should share your personal story with us if you're so inclined. Here's a question I would ask. How does the Crown even have any right to title if over the decades where you've built your home on a plot of land unbeknownst to you is not yours, it's belonged to the Newfoundland and Labrador government as part of their Crown lands? Because the assessment agency of the province and the municipal government's actions of taking your tax dollars is there at some point a breaking point where actual legal claim to the title for the province has gone by the wayside? Because the province operates the assessment agency, and so they've been putting a value on your home, which includes your land, and then consequently your taxes have been paid, and then all of a sudden all those tax dollars maybe were ill-gotten gains by a municipality. At some point is there a legal threshold where I wonder whether or not the province actually has claim to it. I don't know throw it out there for your consideration. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That's only happening when you join us on the program. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we talk a lot about housing and not just about, you know, vulnerable citizens when we have these cold winter days and winter nights and pending storms, but there's a long-term need to get this right. Join us on line number one is Ward 2 Councillor here in the City of St. John's. That's Ophelia Ravencroft. Good morning, Ophelia. You're on the air. How are you doing? Doing okay. I should mention you're also the housing lead representing council. So welcome to the program. Thank you. Okay, so there's been an announcement of a 10-year affordable housing strategy. What exactly is included therein? Well, it should be made clear, of course, what was announced in the, what I read out in the council meeting on Monday was the was actually an annual update for the 10-year affordable housing strategy, which was passed by council back in 2019. Um, we've just come out of year four and into year five of that. And I think the work that's been done uh, you know, over the past year has been really quite significant. I've spoken on uh, the program before and elsewhere about things like the vacancy rate, which was not included in this update. That's coming uh, in the future. But, uh, you know, a number of things have been announced in the last year that were kind of, <coughs> excuse me, uh, <coughs> sorry, not feeling well today, that were kind of uh, accumulated into this one report. Uh, you know, the, ten- the Civic Housing Action Fund, for example, now being replenished with a portion of the city's development fees so that we can uh, better support community partners with their projects. Uh, the announcement that the city has been selected for uh, the federal government's rapid housing initiative funding with more information to uh, to come. I think there was some really significant stuff in there. And given the state of the affordable housing crisis that we're in right now, it's good to know that uh, we've been able to get, accomplish so much in the last year. Give some idea what has been accomplished, because I knew this was a midstream announcement, but how many units, for instance, have been created? I know that the most recent federal government announcement, there's no time to have acted on it as of yet to build more units, but what sort of momentum are we enjoying, or have we been more stagnant than moving forward, your opinion? Well, I think we're, we're certainly moving in the right direction here. Uh, as you said, the, cur- the current uh, federal announcement, the one that was that came out within the last few weeks, there's, there's been no time to move on that. But we were announced as one of the – in 2021, I think it was in June or July, uh, prior to my time on council, we were also selected for RHI funding. 
under the federal government's initiative as well. And uh, that was funded for, it was, you know, a few million dollars for 14 units. And uh, the community proponents that uh, we partnered with on that, on that one actually exceeded it and built 20. Um, so that's quite significant. Um, in addition to that, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that is kind of an indication of the, the considerable direction that we're going in. I'm also, as I said, really looking forward to finding out uh, exactly how much the vacancy rate has gone down. We had cut that by a quarter the last time that we spoke about it. It's going down by another quarter in the future, uh, hopefully. So I've got, I hope to have some good news there in the, the coming weeks. Yeah, year over year, we went from like 3% vacancy rate, to, uh, from, pardon me, from 9% to about 3%, which created a massive crunch. Then you talk about the increased costs, whether it be to buy, interest rates going up, or the rent prices going up. Where are the units being built? Because in the world of affordable housing, it's simply not just the construction of a unit, it's access to amenities, you know, proximity to services. So where are we building these units? Well, I mean, everywhere. If you look at, uh, for example, one of the things that was mentioned in this report, for example, there's been some studies done in the last little while around the uh, the identification of vacant parcels of city land in which we can build units in the future. We've identified some, for instance, on Empire Avenue, on Forest Road, uh, Waterford Bridge Road. Um, you know, areas that are that are easily accessible by public transit, that are easily accessible to amenities, that are good and walkable as well. Um, you know, seeing housing built in those areas, I think, is exactly the right kind of move. Um, in terms of what's going to happen, of course, with the, you know, with any community proponent that uh, comes on board as part of the RHI funding that uh, we've been announced for, you know, I couldn't speak to that. Um, but that's, we are always taking that into consideration when we look at, uh, when we at the city look at developing, and I know when community partners look at developing units as well, because we know that uh, when there's a crunch, that crunch affects everything. We want things to be accessible to public transit. We want things to be walkable. We want to make sure that the city is navigable in that way. Are there hard and fast rules for when developers come forward to, say, add on to a subdivision or to create a new one. Are there any hard and fast rules they have to abide by for including affordable housing in their master plan? No hard and fast rules, but it's always something, of course, that would be encouraged. And, you know, uh, there's been, there's always discussions around, you know, could we do incentives for, you know, for something or other? Is there a, a requirement, for example, that says, you know, you must include X amount of affordable housing? No, although the, if we had the legislative authority to do that, that's certainly something I would be interested in looking into. What about the current properties that are available? You know, I know that the responsibility regarding Newfoundland and Labrador housing, it falls on John Abbott's desk, but there's a lot of units that are available that are not in play, whether it be waiting for renovations or they're in a certain state of disrepair, for instance. So talk about the relationship with the province, because if every unit was maximized, it would go further to chipping away at the vacancy rate. Well, absolutely. I mean, the vacancy rate on, on our end, of course, that's what I was referring to when I'm saying that this has been going down pretty considerably. Right. Um, you know, our ability to turn those units around is, you know, is decently significant, thankfully, and, uh, you know, really depends on what kind of condition they're given to us. And in terms of where the province is going with their vacancy rate or um, how far NLHC has been able to make progress with that, there are always, uh, there's always conversations ongoing uh, between, C- between CSJ Housing and Newfoundland and Labrador Housing around how we can, you know, best do this. I know that uh, one of the things announced, for example, in that report was that there's an updated housing needs assessment, which is going to be forthcoming. That's a partnership between us, and uh, we're hoping to have that one released, I think it's by the end of March. Um, so hopefully that will assist them in planning for their future as well. Once again, provincial responsibility regarding housing, and then some of the conversations we've had leading up to yesterday's forecasted storm. About the fact there's some 231 people, that's what the research says, that are homeless, but you have to believe that's not really truly reflective of how many people are homeless and are on the verge of being homeless. And I know things like emergency shelter is the responsibility of the province. But warm rooms and how the city evaluates whether or not they should take it upon themselves to create that sort of warm room opportunity to come in 
train, warm up, get a bike to eat, be able to use the bathroom. Is there a threshold that has to be met before the city takes action? Uh, you know, for instance, on these some of these forecasted storms. Yesterday didn't really come to pass, which is okay by me. But what's the city's role in some of these potential emergency situations? So uh, with warming centers in Swan, you know, this is something that we, we have partnered with community orgs in the past to support them through the work they're doing with this one. Um, we have a plan that's in place for emergency events to, to, to provide that kind of support. Warming centers, of course, like it isn't just a question of having like a room that you can sit in. It's frequently around, is there food there? Are there community supports there? And so on. If you look, for example, at the city of Toronto, um, which only, which you know, really could do more to provide more warming centers for its residents, in my opinion, which only operates three for a city of some 3 million people, um, the threshold there is minus 15 Celsius uh, or minus 20 with the wind chill. I'm not sure if we have a formal threshold here, but for emergency weather events and so on, there are plans that are in place to partner with community orgs at the Gathering Place, Salvation Army and so on, uh, to support them in the work they're doing and ensure that uh, people are able to access their services uh, more effectively. I made mention of the fact, you know, that we haven't really set firm targets in the effort to recruit healthcare workers. Do we have measurable targets inside the 10-year plan to whether or not we've checked off those boxes to measure our successes, identify the gaps so that we can hit the targets? So what does it look like, for instance, this calendar year, the goals that we want to achieve well it's always just it's it's always as i said constant expansion there are things that were announced in this report that we're looking to see and that i think is it can become necessary for us to have a look at the housing needs assessment is obviously a big one and that's going to be a couple of months down the road at that point hopefully we'll be able to you know say a little bit more concretely um exactly where this is going and there's also mid, there's also a midstream uh, the halfway update uh, that'll be coming on this one as well um in terms of in terms of you know firm goals that are being set it always is just a question of constant expansion because the thing that is the target is always being expanded upon um, we know that this is a you know, this is an, this is an ever evolving problem, as it were. And I think that uh, you know, even if that we, we've got to kind of remain fluid about it, even if you had looked at the housing market a year ago or two years ago, the changes that have been happening have been you know obviously extremely rapid. Things like rising prices in the private uh, sector and so on as well, uh, that have been really skyrocketing, in my opinion, in the last little while. Um, so hopefully, you know, so you know, as much as these things are all are always evolving, we're trying our best to remain fluid and uh, to be as responsive as we can to where things are right now. A little bit of an aside, but there have been sure. various champions for things like rent control legislation to be imposed. Now, I mean, some jurisdictions where they've tried it, there's lots of wiggle rooms around it where I simply can not simply, but I can label my unit as a condo, and then consequently, it might even cost more when I implement some fees, which are part and parcel of condominium living. So. You know, when you see the rents, what they are, I don't know how people do it, to be honest with you. Has that ever been bandied about in your time on council? I don't know if it really works or if it's a great idea, but people talk about it. Well, in terms of, you know, have these things been spoken about, I can tell you that they have, uh, at, le- at the very least, because I've spoken about them. I think that, you know, when we look at other provinces that have rent stabilization where, you know, you're limited from increasing rents for more than a couple of percent every successive year on the same lease, something like that. Um, you know, that you're right in saying that, of course, there are always workarounds. We hear about rent evictions a lot, for example, in some of these jurisdictions that have those things. But that doesn't mean that, it is, that this isn't worth trying, right? At the end of the day, if you look at uh, certain jurisdictions in New Brunswick, for example, where there is where there's no rent stabilization, in some cases you see rent raised by very dramatic amounts, hundreds if not thousands of dollars, um, for a person who is going to renew their lease. And in some cases, that resulted in them uh, having to leave their apartment or their ho- their home on grounds that uh, they simply weren't able to pay. Right. I would be very interested in seeing the province uh, move in that direction ultimately, and I would do whatever I could to advocate for getting that stabilization in place. I think it's ultimately a critical tool. Even if it's not flawless, it's better than having no such tool in place. I appreciate the time, Ophelia. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, that's the works. Appreciate Hope the time. Enjoy the snow. Yeah, thank you. You too. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. As more to a councillor here in the city of St. John's, Ophelia Ravencroft, the housing issue, and again, sometimes... 
maybe I'm guilty of it as well, is we just kind of gloss over what affordable housing means. Because when you use the word affordable, people just basically boil it back down to how much the cost to live in this unit, right? When I think there's a bit more to it than that, because affordable housing for people who are seniors or with mental health concerns and or singles and or families, they all come with a different required approach. So affordable housing is a nice catch-all, but it's got a bunch of different tangents, a bunch of different legs inside it, which need to be considered carefully when we go to add units, because simply adding units might not deal with the affordable housing issue as it looks like out there with the general public and who is in need. Let's go ahead and take a break. We mentioned both these issues off the top. Some 100 uh, ambulance operators, paramedics, and dispatchers are now moved off to job action. A work to rule. Hubert Dawes, the business manager with Teamsters Local 855, is in the queue, as well as Bonnie Learning up at the Happy Valley Goose Bay SPCA. Just an explosion in the number of dogs being housed there, and they are overwhelmed. In a 24-hour period, they went from 25 dogs on site to 60. Both of those calls in the queue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the business manager with Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome back to the show. You and I have talked many times over the years. The last time we talked was about the potential for a job action to take place, and now it has. When people hear strike and paramedic or strike and first responder, maybe a pang of worry hits their belly because they think maybe the services that they might need today or I might need today will not be there. Paint a picture of exactly what happens in this first phase. Okay. First of all, I want everybody to, 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 to relax. The paramedics made it very, very clear to us that we were not going to be withdrawing services, especially this early in our plan for uh, strike action. As I, as I told you before, we're looking at an escalating uh, system of strikes here now. During this first phase, it's, it's geared mainly towards the employer and, and the secondary duties that our, our that our paramedics, EMRs, and dispatchers do to help make the employer's business successful. And there's quite an extensive list of things that they do outside of their primary role, which is to provide patient care. So in our, in our phase one, we just want to, you know, start looking at removing those services from the employer so maybe the employer will realize how much of an impact our paramedics, EMRs, and dispatchers are having on the everyday running of his business. And hopefully that'll, that'll encourage uh, to get back to the table. We have seen uh, work the rules work in other industries and other areas. So we're, we're hoping that this is as far as we'll have to go. Give us an idea of some of the services that will not be available. You know, the first response to a 911 call will be, but what will not be? So, well, you do your 911 call. Our dispatchers are going to take the call, and they will continue to dispatch the calls the same as, as, you know, they did yesterday, they did last week. I mean, there will be no issues here. Uh, things we're looking at is, you know, the, the, probably the only one that the general public will notice is your, your paramedics are not going to be in uniform this morning. When you when you get picked up by the ambulance, the uh, Paramedics will be, will be in, in a different attire than you're probably used to if you, if you avail of ambulance services. Uh, the rest of the stuff is going to be in-house stuff, and I, I don't really want to get into that list because we, we, we're still working on it, and it is, is, a, is a sort of what we call a living document. So I mean, as, as more of the secondary duties start to come to light, we will be, we will be adding those to, to our list. Okay, so people aren't going to see or feel anything quite different here, but you talk about first phase. So are there timelines that have been presented to the employer about when this phase turns into the next phase and whatever that might bring? 
No, we uh, we haven't we haven't set a timeline for the employer yet. We want we we just wanted to you know start start our process, see if it is having an effect. If it is having an effect, and we're going to get mean, meaningful negotiations out of it, we'll continue on doing this until we do have a collective agreement. If you know in in, in short order, or you know it, it appears that this is not having any effect on the employer, then we would we'll move into our second phase. We don't have all the details worked out for our second phase. We do have the blueprint laid out, and we will our straight committees later on this week to have that second phase ready to roll out next week but that doesn't mean next week we'll be moving on to the second phase of our strike we're just going to be ready if, if that need arises what's the thoughts behind arbitration or conciliation or mediation at this stage because there has been a big standoff here which has lasted quite a long time yeah we have a conciliation officer that was appointed by the uh, by the minister uh, the employer, right from the start, has made it known that uh, it, was, it was a wrong move on behalf of the minister to appoint a conciliation officer. But I do have to give the conciliation officer credit. It's through their work that we're at the stage that we're at here today. Uh, you know, it's they, they only have they only have so much authority and so much ability within the Labor Labor Relations Act to to do what they've been doing. But the conciliation officer has been fantastic in trying to get to get us to reach an agreement with the employer. It just the employer is not willing to 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 make that to make that leap at this point. Um, we uh, the the idea of arbitration hasn't been presented by either side, but I mean I'm pretty sure that we would uh, we would look at that at the time if, if that was something that the employer thought might be a viable option to getting us to reach an agreement. But it would have to be bonding arbitration. I mean it's no good to go to arbitration if the it's it's only going to be a recommendation. So that's that's one of the stipulations we would make if we were to look at the arbitration option. Well, we see job action taken, and in this case, a strike. When information is passed out in the form of a pamphlet or what have you, which your paramedics will be doing, you know, where does the intended goal lie? Is it the, for the residents of any of these communities impacted, whether it be Boyd's Cove or Carmenville, Fogo Island, for them to pressure the employer or the pressure of the government? Or how do you hope that that information sharing will impact these negotiations? Well, we'd like to see both. Actually, uh, the employer, you know, needs needs to realize that the community is 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 dependent on this service, and I mean, it's not something that can be, uh, you know, withheld from them. I mean, it is it is a very vital vital service to us. So we're hoping that you know pressure from the general public on the employer may help, you know, moving towards the table. But ultimately, and we've had this discussion before, the provision of health care in this province is the provincial government's responsibility. And, you know, talk to your MHAs, put pressure on government, talk to the Premier, talk to the health minister, because they won't talk to us. And, you know, start encouraging them to exercise, you know, their right to, to, to make sure that uh, those services are available to the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. I mean, I've just been recently made aware that the government has put out a plan to the other operators, community-based and private in the province, that if we do move, you know, eventually to a full general strike and with all services, which is something that we have not talked about up to this point, they're going to offload the responsibility of coverage in our areas to the surrounding ambulance services. And that, to me, is just a clear indication that the government is not listening. One of the biggest issues that we're facing is fatigue. And that fatigue is coming from the number of calls, the number of hours that our paramedics and EMRs and dispatchers are spending on the road and answering calls. And, you know, it's not unique to the services in this province that are represented by Teamsters. It is everywhere in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. I've been reached out to by community-based services, reached out through by non-unionized private ambulances. And they just don't know if they're going to be able to meet that commitment. I mean, 
again, we've said it time and time again, paramedics and EMRs get into this profession. They have no interest in withholding service, but you can only do so much. This is a very physically demanding, very mentally demanding job. And, you know, the government solution right now, or at least as I'm, I'm hearing rumors of, is just offload that onto another service. Hubert, appreciate the update today. When there's anything else to report, we look forward to speaking with you again. No problem. Take care now, buddy. You too, Hubert. Bye-bye. Hubert Tau, business manager with the Teamsters Local 855, phase one of the job action of the people they represent, uh, paramedics, ambulance operators, dispatchers. We'll see where it goes. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the vice president of the Happy Valley Goose Bay SPCA. That's Bonnie Learning. Good morning, Bonnie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Oh, you know, busy. Yes, I bet you are. So one of the quotes in the news story is, you need a miracle. What led to needing a miracle up in Happy Valley Goose Bay's SPCA? So we have a large intake of animals at any given time, but this past weekend uh, put us way over the top. We had a call on Saturday um, from a homeowner in the Upper Lake Melville area who heard puppies underneath his house. Uh, We assembled a team of volunteers, including myself and uh, some other board members and some other volunteers. Uh, went to his home, and indeed, there were puppies under his house, and there were two mom dogs, two stray mom dogs hanging around. Um, we had to get some help to get underneath the house to uh, take off some siding, etc. And by the end of the day, there were 18 puppies with uh, two mom dogs. So they had 18 puppies between them. They were probably co-parenting, helping feed them both, feed all the puppies. Um, we had to catch the dogs. The two bomb dogs were really uh, skittish, but thankfully we, we got them and we had to get them. We had no choice. The puppies were too small, so we had to get them. So that was 18 puppies Saturday afternoon. So on Saturday evening, we had to pick up 10 more that came to us from Postville that had been waiting to come to us for some time. So that made a total of 30 for Saturday alone. And then Sunday, we had a call um, from another lady in the area who had a stray mom dog with four puppies on her property. So we got those as well. So that was a total of 35 new animals within less than 24 hours had to come into our care. Do we know, or is it important to know, where the mom dogs come from? Who owns them? Because no, that's that's no that's no consequence to us. We you know wherever they come from, wherever they're to, we'll, we'll go to wherever they're to when we can, when we're able to help go get them and. Uh, you know, just just take them into our care and, and look after them and get them taken care of and hopefully get them adopted at some point. Do you have the capacity, the human resources, and all the materials needed to house and look after these 60 dogs? Um, not really. Um, well, we moved into our new building in 2016. It's a 2,500-square-foot building. Um, I mean, there's a lot more space than what we used to have, but uh, generally speaking, we can only house, you know, you know, X number of dogs. I don't know a number off the top of my head, but... We'll squeeze in what we can. We utilize fosters when we can. We utilize the local boarding kennel when we can and when we need to. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're way over capacity, but uh, thankfully we have a great working relationship, uh, particularly with the St. John SPCA and the Gander SPCA, and um, we're able to transfer animals to them when they have space. So that's what we're working on now in the next few days um, to transfer a bunch of these animals to them. They have space to take them, so whenever we can send, we can send. I should add, too, that um, we saw this We saw this coming. Um, we knew, like, probably since early summer, our intake hasn't stopped at all. Uh, generally speaking, like, we'll get, you know, a busy period, you know, of a couple months maybe where we're kind of, like, overflowing with animals. We'll get them moved on, adopted, et cetera. And then it'd be kind of a bit of downtime at the shelter where it's not so crazy and it's not so busy. We haven't had experience, we haven't experienced that since uh, early summer. And we knew 
we were probably going to reach a crisis point at some point, and we reached it this weekend. Uh, just from my understanding, you know, so last year, summer, maybe February, you raised enough money to send a charter flight to Gander St. John's with some animals where they had space here and you did not. You say yes. it wasn't available this year. What, ha- what makes it unavailable? What makes a charter unavailable? Yeah, but why is it not an option this year? I'm just curious. Yeah, because we just um, we just don't have the the funds to do it this time around. Uh, last their last year, uh, St. John's SPCA had actually raised um, five thousand dollars to go toward a charter because that was our goal. Because we had been overrun with animals, and we did some fundraising as well, and we had a bit of extra money on hand that we could put toward it. That's not a reality at this point in time right now for us. Um, uh, you know, funds are running low. Um, we just we're just so busy caring for the animals themselves like we just don't have extra time to spend on anything else to be that to be totally honest so. you, said, you said the mom dogs are a bit, gets a bit skittish part of me but the puppies crying under someone's front porch or their back deck what kind of shape are the puppies in the puppies thankfully were really good they're uh, really well uh, you know they're a nice little size they weren't uh, emaciated or anything like that and the mom dogs were pretty good as well so thankfully, uh, all the puppies were good. So we got one of those moms and 10 puppies into a foster home and one mom and the eight pu- other eight puppies are at our shelter right now. So they're all doing good. One of the moms is a bit more uh, skittish and feral than the other, but we're, we're confident she'll come around over time. Bonnie, you talk about not only potential for foster homes in the area, but for people who are flying out of the area to the island or possibly elsewhere, and you're asking them if it's possible for them to take a dog with them. What does that process look like? Oh, yeah. So that's uh, that's pretty straightforward. So um, all people have to do if they're flying to Gander or St. John's is to uh, contact me. All I need is, is their itinerary. I can contact uh, the airline and attach, try to attach a kennel uh, for them so they don't even have to do that part. Um, then all we have to do is meet the person at the airport with the animal, and um, we pay for the kennel. And then the, there's someone on the other end of St. John's or Gander to meet the person traveling. They don't have to handle the dog. They don't have to handle the kennel. We take care of everything from start to finish. So it's just a matter of someone saying, hey, yeah, sure, try to attach a kennel to me, and, and we'll go from there. So that's, uh, that's that's all there is to it. It's pretty straightforward. I've had a lot of spots. Thank goodness I've got seven flights booked now between tomorrow and up till Tuesday next week, and i got about six or seven more to check out today to see if I can attach kennels. So the response has been really good. So it's really appreciated because that's a really good way to move animals for us. It sure sounds like uh, the fact that it's that straightforward and the lack of needing to handle the dog or the kennel probably makes it a very attractive option to try to help out because no real pressure. You're met at the other end and you've uh, chipped in a good deed. Uh, Anything else this morning, Bonnie? Yeah, I do want to add that, uh, you know, we're, we are just so busy. Like, in 2022, we took in a total of 511 animals. The majority of those animals in our area are dogs and puppies, of course. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very stressful. It's uh, time-consuming, and we're just doing the best we can. Unfortunately, we had to put out a post a couple days ago that, you know, we're just close to intake right now just because we have physically no space. Um, but I have had a lot of people reach out to be foster homes, so I'm hoping we can utilize some of those to try to free up some space as well. Um, but we're just asking people to bear with us, to be patient. If people are looking to get animals to us, all we can do right now is put them on a wait list, and we will certainly do that. And, um, you know, just, again, just bear with us. Um, you know, we're doing the best we can, and as soon as we can start moving some animals out, we can start taking some new ones in because we've got about 30 on our wait list right now. Um, so we'll have to start working on those. But, again, we're just asking the general public for their patience 
and their uh, their support as we you know try to work through these work through this uh, you know influx of animals. I keep up the good work and thanks for the time this morning, Bonnie. Uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Take good care. Uh, you too. Alrighty, bye bye. That's bye. Bonnie Learning. She's the vice president of the SPCA in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Let's take a break. When we come back, Brendan's in the queue. He's got something to donate. What? We'll find out. Talk away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Brendan. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. How are you doing? Very good. Yesterday good. morning, I uh, was uh, on VOCM about an organization looking for winter coats and winter boots. And uh said on Water Street, but I never, never got the number on Water Street, where it's, what, what the name was, the, or the, the address. You heard that on the newscast? It uh, was on VOCM yesterday morning. Okay, I'm not 100% sure who that was looking. Let me have just quick zap around the uh, website and see if there's a story there looking for. I mean, there's all kinds of organizations looking for that type of material. Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to donate winter boots and clothes, even if you get them to me, I'll put them in the hands of the folks at uh, VOCM Cares, or we can make sure it makes its way to the gathering place or stuff like that, or if you just want to choose one of those organizations yourself, because they absolutely will gladly accept your donation. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no problem. So those are the two right off the top of my head, but there's lots of others. If you run into any issues, you let me know. We'll find a home for your boots and clothes, no doubt. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Brendan. All the best. Have a nice day. Thank you, you. sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure who that was. Will I start this call now, or will we wait for after the news, Dave? What do you think? Okay. Yeah, so, you know, it happens every single season. When the first bit of winter weather comes, it takes some people and their driving habits to adjust to conditions. You know, I don't know if there's any legitimate reason as to why people forget how to drive in the winter, but it does, you know, pounce right upon you. Next thing you know, you're the comfortable distance that you travel behind the car in front of you. We have to make an adjustment on that front. You know, stopping time, everything that changes here in the winter. And, of course, even something as fundamental as taking a turn out of a parking lot and realizing how quickly or slowly you're going to be able to do it in safe fashion. So, so many adjustments have to be made. There's also, and I've been talking about winter tires on the program, There's always going to be the need for an annual conversation about what the need is for a winter tire. The winter tire versus the all-weather tire. The studs versus your normal rubber uh, winter-rated tire. So there's a lot to it. So maybe some safety tips and maybe some helpful reminders. We'll come up with our guest that's coming up right after the news. He's the senior driving instructor with Safety NL. That's Jim Brazel. So... There's a lot of things, and if you want to put something to Mr. Brazel, then you let me know, and I can, of course, can do it on your behalf. Let's check on the Twitter before we get to the news break. So I made reference to the supply chain issue regarding critical minerals, and a fellow who's been involved in it, and maybe, uh, I won't say his name out loud because I don't want to put him on the spot, but he's been involved in this particular industry for quite a long time. He says, it's very easy to take minerals from exploration to having a finished product. The hard part is dealing with the bureaucracy in Newfoundland and Labrador. So when we have government willing and wanting to put investment dollars into exploration, critical minerals or otherwise... If there's a recognized need to do away with more and more of the bureaucracy so that we, keep, we can create more opportunities beyond simply exploration and production, because can you imagine the impact on the economy if we actually did the processing? more and more processing, secondary, tertiary. We had some actual manufacturing of some of the end product and distributed from here versus send out what is the most coveted material, which is the raw material, and then buying back the final product. Anyway, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Jim Brazel's there to talk about some winter driving and winter tire options. Don't go away. 
Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So for Brendan's call, look at where to donate the boots and coats and what have you. Apparently that story yesterday was about Thrive. Thrive was at 807 Water Street. They were the outlet looking for some donations for winter boots and winter clothes. So there you go. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the senior driving instructor with Safety NL. That's Jim Brazel. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, tis the season. You know, it's remarkable to me, and maybe I'm guilty of it sometimes, too, is when the seasons change, our habits don't. What are the number one mistakes you see out there where people move from clear road driving into snow-covered, ice-covered roads? Well, the biggest uh, concern I have is the following distance that people continue to, to, to use when following the vehicle ahead of them. Uh, we teach our students at Safety NL a minimum of three seconds in good weather and to increase that based upon what the conditions are like. And we all, always, as does VOCM, you know, suggest to individuals to drive for the conditions that they're in. And that is another issue that that's out there, that people tend to drive as if they were on a nice, beautiful, sunny day in the middle of August. And they're not, obviously. Yesterday was a prime example of that. Yeah, I mean, you see it. I traveled back on the Outer Ring Road in my commute home after the show, and you always get a few heroes that are going to take the left lane and blister through because they've got a big truck with four-wheel drive and winter tires, when, in fact, that makes very little difference when you're going too fast for the conditions themselves. What do you suggest people do to prepare to understand just what, just what the conditions are like under the rubber? For me, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, but this is what I do some days. I get out into my own street. It won't be necessarily reflective of, like, Elizabeth Avenue or the Outer Ring Road, but I do a little break test and i see how far the vehicle slides just by going you know 10 15 kilometers an hour jam on the brakes see what happens just to give myself an idea of what the conditions are like exactly and then there's nothing wrong with doing that as a matter of fact one of the suggestions we make to people is that when they get the first snow is, is that they take their vehicle to see how it reacts to the conditions and adjust the driving accordingly yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So stop time is one thing, but it also has a direct relation to your brakes, your speed, and your tires. Here comes the annual conversation about what's required. Right. Summer tires, no good. All seasons, probably no good. Let's get into the difference between an all-weather tire and a winter-rated tire. Well, they're both winter-rated. An, an all-weather tire is a tire that's not going to be the best in terms of really severe winter weather. And so it's the sort of tire that you can see individuals who don't have to go out into the conditions that were evident yesterday could stay at home but still be able to drive in the winter time in less severe conditions. And uh, it is still rated. Uh, as a winter tire, it has the uh, mountain inside or the snowflake inside the, the mountain peak, 
but it's the type of tire that you can drive all year long, including the winter time, as long as you're not, like I said, going out into really severe conditions. Not going to try to talk anybody out of a studded tire, but there are some issues concerning studs. Now, it's not about what it does to the roads. It's just where it's most appropriate, where it's most effective. For some people, they swear by it. They couldn't care less. Studded tires is what they're going to use in the wintertime come hell or high water. Where is it most ideal? Does the scenario most ideal for a studded tire versus, let's say, normal winter tire? Well, I would suggest to people that maybe throughout this province, the one area that has a different type of winter is the Avalon Peninsula. And when you look at the streets, say, in St. John's, the hills, and that kind of uh, environment, then that's when a stutter tire probably is best used. Um, We get about maybe a dozen times in the course of a winter where you're forecasting for uh, icy conditions, for uh, black ice being on the roads. That's when a stutter tire is best used. It doesn't pro- doesn't provide you any benefit in terms of snow. And I think that there's something else that needs to be that drivers need to be made aware of. And that is that a stutter tire it takes longer to stop that vehicle on dry pavement. So when we have clear roads, dry pavement that when you break a stutter tire it's going to take longer for you to stop. It just makes sense because you're reducing the amount of contact between the rubber and the road with the introduction of the stud. Yes, exactly. Uh, Anything else you want to offer for a safety tip or some friendly reminders before we say goodbye, Jim? Well, one of the things is I would like drivers to realize that there's only four points of contact for traction at any time on your vehicle. And uh, those four points is approximately a foot uh, tire. So if you're not using good tires, then you're reducing your, your level of traction, obviously. Jim, good to have you on the show. Stay safe out there. Appreciate the time. You as well. Take Bye good care. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep rolling here. So the Newfoundland Rogues, they're in training camp at this very moment. Their first game coming up on January 20th and the 21st when they host the Rally Firebirds. Then the London Lightning come to town on the 25th, 27th, and 28th. Join us online, number one, is the head coach of the Rogues. That's Jerry Williams. Coach Williams, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Doing okay this morning. How you doing, Coach? I'm good. I'm good. Just here, just preparing these guys to train the camp, trying to push them through it. Cracking the whip, as I hear from Tony Kenny. So as a Floridian, here we are back in the winter conditions here in the city of St. John's, which I'm sure you're big on. So, Coach, last year there was an interrupted season. And now you've changed leagues as well. So you moved from the American Basketball Association to join the Basketball League. You have a partnership with the Canadian Basketball League. What changes realistically for you in the club? Um, well, different type players. Uh, you have better players, more experienced players, guys. There's well, some of the younger guys as well that's freshly coming out of college, whereas in the NBA, you know, you've had seasoned guys that played for a long, long time and continue to want to play. So, you know, that league pretty much caters to them, whereas now you got guys that's playing that, that has the main goal to go to the NBA, go to the G League, go to big-time Europe and play basketball. So there was a couple of interesting rules in place at the American Basketball Association, all about the excitement level and different ways to decide games. What kind of rules are we playing under when we're playing in the Basketball League in conjunction and partnership with the National Basketball League of Canada? 
Well, it's, it's the same as if you watch a Toronto Raptors game. Okay. You know, it's the NBA style. You know, we shoot the NBA three-pointer. Um, everything, all the rules are the same. It's no 3D rule anymore where you get an extra point if you turn the ball over in the backcourt if you score. Um, it's just strictly NBA basketball. So anybody who's ever watched a Toronto Raptors game, they wouldn't understand that that's exactly the style of play that we're playing right now. When the season got interrupted last year, of course, you had a roster of players. What kind of returnees do you have in place, and do they jive with the new rules that they're going to be playing under, which are basically NBA rules this league? Well, I got, I got four guys that's returning from last year. Um, Tunzel Hadney, Tyrone Young, um, Dane Ring, who's a local guy here, Daniel Gordon, who's a local guy here. Um, and it's good to have them here, but I am teaching them the new rules of the game. It's totally different than what we did last year. Um, so it should be exciting, man, and they're, they're very excited to get going. And um, we have a very, very special signing that I just signed a guy to. Um, I won't release his name yet. Um, Tony doesn't really care if I do, but I won't. Um, but we, we have we have a really good signing that's, that's actually on the plane right now headed to the island. Um, I think you guys are going to be very excited about um, – I know the players are excited about having them come in. So um, things are looking up and up for us, and Tony is doing a great job with the team. You know he's committed to us, and, and he shows it every single day by just, you know, going out doing things that, you know, the president really shouldn't be doing, but he's doing it. And he's going out, and he wants this thing to work, um, and he shows it every single day. Yeah, I got a sneak peek under the cover last night when I was talking to Tony about who you got signed, and I won't go ahead and let that cat out of the bag either. It's not my place. Okay, so, you know, we've talked. With the different leagues and different rules, you had to adjust your coaching style and the type of players who went on the floor. We've seen and we've had this conversation before, Coach. We've gone from when I was young watching it, it was all about the, the tall guy. It was all about the big guy playing around the center. And now it's gone way the other way. It's all about the shooters. You know, all ball control is always going to be important regardless of style, but it's all about knocking down the three, especially when you watch the NBA these days. So what kind of style of ball is Jerry Williams bringing to the Rogues? I mean, that's you. You said it. That's exactly it. The game has totally changed, and you know, being a coach that's that's successful in these times, you have to change with the game. You can't stay the same. Like you have to evolve with it, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Like I got some guys that could really knock the shot down, and you know, I, I tell guys all the time, like, look, your job is to make shots. If you can't make shots, I can't I can't pay you. You know, you can't be here, and they understand that. And and like you said, like Steph Curry, like he's definitely changed the game, and. Three-pointers are a way of going right now, and I have some guys that could really knock down the three ball, to be honest with you. Describe a day at training camp for the boys and the Rogues getting ready for the season because you can shoot the, the rock all you like, but there's a lot that goes into cohesiveness, become a team, the chemistry, the gelling. What does it look like at camp? Well, um, as of right now, it's a bunch of me yelling. Um, I yell a lot. <laughs> going out um, <laughs> I'm running them guys a lot. So yesterday was the first day that we actually started putting plays in. You know, I sent them the playbook over the summer or over the time that we was off, you know, so they could get used to them and stuff of that nature. So, but yesterday was the first time we actually started putting them in. And these guys, they was right on point, man. Like really, really right on point. So I was very pleased with them. But as of right now until the 14th, it's a track meet. It's a definitely a track meet. Get you in the best shape that I can get you in. And yelling, 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 yelling. 
Yeah, whoever's got the legs in the fourth quarter wins a lot of these close ball games. So you've got a 40-game right. schedule coming up. 28 games going to be played at the Mary Brown Center, 12 on the road. Teams come from the United States, Ontario, different parts of Quebec. So I'm looking forward to the rogue season this year. And just a quick one outside of your league, but I guess it does play a role in talking about basketball in full. It was just yesterday on the 10th of January. This date in 1986, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar scored his 34,000th point. He went on, of course, still the all-time leader at 38,387. LeBron's going to catch him. What do you make of that race with LeBron James chasing the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? I mean, man, listen, LeBron is one of the best players to ever put on a pair of basketball shoes to play the game. Um, I'm, I'm very excited for him. I'm happy for him. I think he deserves every accolade that he achieves. He's been around for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, he, he's trying to stay around to play with his son. Like, who who could say that? Like, yeah. there's not a lot of people that can actually say, I want to play with my son. Um, and he's able to do that. And, you know, that's that's a great thing, man. Like, with me, I'm bringing my son over here you know, to come just to see us practice, and he's ecstatic. So just think about if I was able to play in the NBA with him. <laughs> you know, that would be something that's that, that's really special. So LeBron, he's amazing, man, and I, all the accolades that he achieved, I, I'm, I'm just happy for him. I'm pulling for him. Yeah, billion-dollar athlete. The world has changed so remarkably in pro sports. It's, it's mind-boggling. So he's just short of 38,000, and he's inevitably going to catch Kareem, and we'll see if he gets to stick around long enough to play with his boy. So best player of all time, MJ or LeBron? Oh, man, come on. That's Michael Jordan. Come on, man. Hey, man, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, not, coach. It's, not, it's close to me. It's Michael Jordan, hands down, for sure. Yeah, me, me too. Uh, so the Newfoundland Rogues are going to hit the court, not only today to continue on with training camp. First game comes up on the 20th of January. You play on the 21st as well against the Rally Firebirds. The London Lightning come to town on the 25th, 7th, and 8th. If you want tickets to go catch some Rogue action, and the tickets are affordable. We're looking at 17 bucks to go see some pro ball. Just go to the Mary Brown Center box office, get yourself lined up for those two home openers, and then we'll see how the season proceeds from there. Coach, good to have you on the show. Good luck. Go get them. All right. I appreciate you so much, Mike. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Jerry Williams heading back to the court to yell and get the boys ready to roll. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sheena's on the wait list for a new doctor. The problem? She doesn't even know where she is in the queue. We'll hear from Sheena right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number three. Good morning, Sheena. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Did I pronounce your name properly? You did. Okay, great. Good start. So, yeah, uh, I moved to the west, west coast of the island a couple years ago, and I went on the database to get a doctor in this area and oh, just over two years ago was told that there were 700 people ahead of me so i decided after a couple of years had gone by that i just was curious how many fewer people there would be ahead of me because my name had moved up the list and i started calling different health agencies and part of western health to to first of all find who I needed to call to get that information and the people I called said they had no idea so I just then went back to the phone number for that you call when you wanted your name to go on the list because it was logical to me that if the people taking your names to go on the list would be able to tell you where you were on the list right makes sense and uh, I called, and the person I spoke with said, oh, he, he only puts data in the system and can't tell me um, where I am on the list after two years because there's, he has
has no access to that. And I said, well, then who do I call? And he said he didn't know. So I find that all quite a bit baffling because I think it's reasonable for a person on a wait list to find out after a decent amount of time has passed where they are since they first signed up. So that's the mystery. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, I think the same could be said for people waiting for a procedure, one procedure or another, diagnostic imaging or whatever the case may be. If you know where you are, then it may give you a little bit of more ease some of your anxieties knowing that you're soon going to be seen as opposed to the unknowns, which leads to more and more anxiety and frustration. So it's strange that you can't find that out. Just from my base understanding, and now that I, I hear you that you moved to the West Coast, I recognize your name and who you are. So welcome back to the show. Thank okay. you, Patty. So is this through Patient Connect NL? Is that the list that you put your name on? Well, I, I went on the government uh, page to see, you know, how, where to begin to unravel this. And, yeah, whatever the, the phone number is you're supposed to, to call, or it's divided up by region, by health region. So I called the phone number for Western. But, yeah, I don't know, whatever is on the, the government pages for are you looking for a doctor, go on a wait list, and then you proceed through the how you're supposed to do that based on where you live in the province. Okay, because that's what I did. I didn't have a family doctor, so it was called Patient Connect NL. I signed up online, and I never knew where I was in the queue, and it took me... I'm going to say 10 months before I got connected with a doctor. My doctor is at one of these new collaborative care clinics here on uh, Monday Pond Road. So it took me quite a while. I did not chase to see where I was in the queue. I don't know what that process should look like, but it would be a helpful piece of information. Well, it certainly would. I mean, I think waiting two-plus years since I signed up, I don't think that's me being impatient. No. No pun intended. (laughs) For the patient to want to know, where am I? And and I guess I'm just curious if anyone can solve this mystery for me. It just I just found it very unusual that any other government agency I've ever called where I, they asked me for personal information, whether it would be MCP or something like that, when they have the information and know that you are actually who you say you are, They'll, they'll give you what you want. And I've never heard of a one-way database where someone just inputs but can't give you your own personal information. I can figure it out. I'll contact the department to see if there's a process to find out where you are, whether it be with Patient Connect NL or any other database uh, held by one regional health authority or another. I'll find out, and I'll speak about it on the show. Okay. Well, thank you for your help, Patty. Appreciate your time, Shannon. Take good care. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that should be something we can figure out. And why wouldn't people know where someone is on a wait list? You know, if at one time you're 100 and six months past, now you're number 25, just knowing where you are is a bit of a help, I think, when we talk about how anxious people get when trying to engage in healthcare. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Great. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Not so bad. Not so bad. I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the winter tire stuff. Sure. Um. So I, I, I have to give a thumbs up to uh, Mr. Brazel there, who uh, said about the studded tires. They're only good on a little bit of ice. Um, they they don't do nothing when you get a bit of snow down like we got there here yesterday. Um, they don't do a thing. And they only tear up the roads more. Um, if you're living in an icy community, so be it. 
we don't have that icy stuff here, really. And he, he sort of over over said there that, you know, 12 times a year, 13 times a year. I think maybe it's more like two or three times a year that we get icier. We basically drive on slush. I mean, that's yeah. sort of the Avalon Peninsula way. We have dark snow, slushy roads. That's been basically the experience that most motorists would have here for the vast majority of the winter. The issue is for folks, they have that, you know, there's something to be said for a sense of security as you drive. And for some, even if it's not real and it jeopardizes your uh, stop times or distance to stop because the studs are interacting with the road more than the rubber. But people just swear by it. It's just one of those things where you cannot convince someone who has studs that's probably not not the safest option for them, but they just feel like it is, and so they consequently go with it. And I'm not trying to talk anybody out of anything, but Jim Brazel knows more about it than I do, which is why I was happy to get his perspective. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But I think what happens is it gives people a false sense of security. And uh, when they're driving, like he said, they, they drive too close. They think they're driving on nice roads. They've got studded tires, so they're, they're going to be able to grip the pavement more. And it's it's just a fallacy. I've driven across this country in all different types of weather, and I have never, I've only owned all-season tires. And, but if you drive to road conditions, that's all you need. Well, I'm not going to go ahead and say that that would be my perspective. I think winter tires are crucial, especially at a certain temperature. The all-season rubber just doesn't, the compound isn't conducive to certain cold conditions, but to each their own. I, I really think, you know, like I've been talking about maybe the potential for mandatory winter tires, which has been really not a popular comment from me, no, but so be it. I just threw it out there for conversation purpose. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Rob, before we say goodbye? Well, I was just, I was just saying, like, like I... You know, I grew up in Northern Ontario. Yep. I've been out in Fort McMurray, Alberta. And all I've done is had good all-season... Like, I'm not talking slicks here now. you, you got to have a decent set of tires on. But they've always been all-season tires. And I've never had a hitch with them driving across this country three or four times in all different weathers and everything like that. Where are you from in Northern Ontario? Uh, a town called Pefferlaw. I'm not familiar with it. I've driven through northern Ontario a couple of times, but I don't recognize that community. Um, well, Pefla is more north central. Um, I, I, I also uh, had a 10-year stint in uh, Perry Sound. Nice community. So, yes, beautiful community. Yeah, beautiful. absolutely. Rob, glad you made time for the program this morning. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Patty. Have a good day. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, just an interesting tidbit on this date. It was actually the 11th of January, 1938, that the very first airplane landed at Gander International Airport. Interesting. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's been a story regarding extremely excessive bright lights down in the outer battery and what that means for the residents surrounding those very, very extremely bright lights, which I took it upon myself to go down and see. It's quite the sight to behold even though you have to squint to look at them. Steve's in the queue to talk about that, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Steve Toppin. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. I'm calling because the uh, city council apparently is host is going to be putting a motion forward for a vote around this uh, nuisance by lighting bylaw. That's going to happen Monday morning, I believe. Yep. 
It's uh, to address the extremely bright lights at the Narrows and Outer Battery Road. And uh, I'm calling because I'm concerned that no one's going to be paying attention to this. <laughs> I think it's an opportunity. What do they need to know? I think it's an opportunity that, you know, that uh, if your neighbor shines a super bright light, like a stadium light in your window, uh, that the city will be able to respond to that and control that light. Uh, right now, there's no policy on the books that uh, allows the city to, um, well, legally and safely um, deal with that light. We're hoping that the city will uh, vote in favor of uh, of using uh, an amendment to their uh, provincial, um, to the St. John's Act, controlled by the province, to uh, to try and get control of the situation. I'm not so sure that they don't have the tools available to them at this moment in time. The timidity is, I think, what jumps off the page to me. For instance, mm-hmm. one of the quotes or one of the uh, clauses from the act that I've seen people quote on my social media feeds says something along mm-hmm. these lines here. Okay, so let me get it. Where, in the opinion of the city medical officer or the council, a building or a trade or occupation, matter or thing, in or about a building or on the lot which is situated, plumbing, sewage, drainage, light, or ventilation of a building is in is a public nuisance clause. I think they've got the tools available. Uh, they're, for some reason, afraid to use them. You have done your research. Uh, now, there is no... Uh there is no officer of health for the city of St. John's right now. No, that's right. That's why the additional reference to council itself. Yeah, but uh, that doesn't prevent the council from getting some professional support in this for this thing to get some advice on what it means to uh, you know sleep under thousands of lumens of light every night. Just describe it. I went down to have a look because people were telling me about it, and it is really something else. You know, people will say, well, isn't, isn't bright lights in the neighborhood a good idea, you know, to stave off the, the nuisances checking our car doors and maybe breaking into my shed? But this is a different kettle of fish. This is lights like I don't even think I've ever seen lights quite as bright in any neighborhood setting. No, no. This is, this is like having the brightest car lights pointed directly in your window, into every window. Not just uh, not just a single window, and not just a single car light. Like it's uh, blinding. You can't look at it, and you're inside the house. What does that mean for you, practically speaking? Like, well, how's that impacted your life? Well, I'm calling on behalf of my neighbors, so um, it, it, it's affected their lives in the insofar as they can't get a proper night's sleep. That's the main problem. Now, there's sleep professionals that'll tell us that that's a very bad thing. It could tend amount to torture in in some cases. And I, I would say that this might be a, might be a, a case where it, it could be considered torture. And I'm not, I'm not. This is not hyperbole. It's it's a lot of light. Twenty thousand lumens per light source, and um, we're measuring. Uh, well over a thousand inside the house now to put that into context uh, your normal light bulb is around two or three hundred lumens 
the issue about what it means for disrupting your circadian rhythms, your sleep patterns, is mm-hmm. absolutely real. I mean, we talk yeah. about those things when it comes to something as fundamental as daylight savings time. So just mm-hmm. imagine if that's the all night long, every night implications of the disruption of your sleep. As a matter of fact, on that front, because that's the number one complaint I've heard from many, not only that the shadows it creates and what have you, but it's the sleep-related matters. We're actually going to release, mm-hmm. uh, reach out to one of the professors at Memorial University who deals with sleep, Sheila Garland. She's been on the show many times in the past. Maybe she can add some uh, professional perspective here to further bolster the point that this type of disruption to your sleep is a big deal. It doesn't become a nuisance. It becomes a real health hazard. That's for sure. That's for sure. There's also the, the question of dark skies. There's, there's dark sky cities around the world who have brought in policies that uh, reduce the amount of glow off the clouds, off the sky, so that you can see the sky better. So we have other cities in the world who are actively t- controlling the amount of reflection or albedo off the ground and, and how much lights get. They're not allowed, you're not allowed to point lights upward, for example, in Tucson. Um, but uh, St. John's has an opportunity to try and write the laws on this to, to make it right so that they have some kind of control over lighting in the city. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's very similar to some of the controls. Now, it's all not under the auspices of the city of St. John's, but when you have things that disrupt disrupts people, peace and sanctity and their sleep, whether it be loud pipes or lights or whatever the case may be, we're talking about the ability to lead a normal, peaceful life without being imposed upon because someone has got the baffles beat out of their motorcycle pipe or they've got these lights which are absolutely blinding. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating to make a point. When I went down to have a look, I was like, oh my God, look at that. Uh, it's really quite something. Steve, anything else no, you'd like to add or remind the folks what's coming up on Monday? You can see it, yeah, the vote's coming up on Monday. Um, have a look. You can just stand downtown and look towards the Narrows, and you'll see a blinding light that, towards the Narrows. And that's not chain rock. That's that's a, that's some just some stadium lights pointed in people's windows. Yeah, there is no missing and, this, that's for sure. Hopefully uh, the city of St. John's isn't too, uh, you know, determining public policy by their exposure litigation. I want them to try and step up and do something proactive to, to help out our, our people. I appreciate the time, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Good day. Yeah, you know, sometimes that might come across if if you're not in the area and you think that, oh, this is kind of petty neighborhood stuff, man, and he's right. You can stand down at the keg and very clearly see what that light is of concern for people in the area. So, anyway, let's go. Line number one, Francis, you're on the air. Hello, Francis. Dave, is line one potted up? Francis, line one, you're on the air. Yes, dear. Hello. Hello. Yes. Okay, uh, I have a couple of things for you this morning. Sure. Um, the uh, NL backpack that we have for our uh, our uh, needles, for our shots. The what? The, the vaccine passport? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, now, you, you they don't... You can't update your record on your phone or on your iPad now? Yeah, because there isn't one in existence any longer. That's right. You can update your your inoculation uh, report, though. You can get the information about when your last shot was and all that stuff, though. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I phoned them this morning. I have a phone number. I'll give it to you if you need it. Um, and what they do is they send you out uh, a paper, a paper one. 
okay. in the mail. Yep. And it's updated, and they send you a barcode with it. And what you do is, is you open up your backpack that's on your on your uh, iPad or on your phone. Okay. And you put you uh, put the uh, the new code back the new code that they give you on the sheet over the code on your iPad or your phone, and it it updates it. Okay, and you're looking, for, you're looking for updates, what, just to have the information for... No, 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 I got the information. They're sending it in the mail now. They're not... They're, they're, you can't just go on your computer and, uh, you know, how you used to delete it and then re-enter it and, and all your, your, your uh, vaccinations would show on your, on your record? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so now they don't do that anymore. They send you, um, they're going to send it in the mail. You have the phone. And it only, it's only, only takes a couple of minutes. They just get your information, your, you know, your MCP, your address and all that stuff. And they send it out in the mail showing a new barcode with your new, all your updated records on it. And you have to download it on your one that you have on your phone or your iPad by scanning the one on the on the paper that they send you over the one that's on the phone. Okay. So just out of curiosity's sake and not to get into your private matters, why did you need or want this information that they've now put in the mail for you? Just for your own personal records? I need the new, I have five vaccinations now and I only have four on my computer. Okay. All right. Yep. So now that you can't update the ones on your computer, don't delete them until you get the paper one in the mail. You have to call in, get a pit. They'll send you a, pay, a new paper one to update your record. Got it. So you said you had a number you want to share it with us so we can share it with all? Yeah. Okay. The number, the number is uh, 1833 Yep. 951-951. Mm-hmm. Three eight five nine. Yeah, okay, I'm familiar with that number. Okay, I really yeah. appreciate this morning, Francis. Anything else you want to tell us about? Yes, one more thing. Sure. What is it I got here? Um, oh yes, about your uh, the um, if you have a, a fender bender or a car accident or something like that, uh-huh. you don't need to go to the RNC office anymore to report it. Did you know that? Well, there's a need to report to police when you have a, a certain amount of damage. Uh, you yes. know, I think you need a police yes. report to accommodate your insurance claims. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, that's right. If you, if you, the police have to come. But uh, my daughter had an incident, and uh, she was under the impression she had to go to the police station. So I called the station, and they said, no, you can do it online now. It's uh, and I have the the site that you can go. Sure. If you, you know, it's the site is um, it's rnc. Yep. Dot gov g o b. That's right. Dot n l. Dot c a. Yeah. So you go there and the, and you download the form. You fill it all out. Put your uh, put your uh, uh, whatever happened in the in the accident in the place that you want you to put it tell everything and you just submit and it goes to the police station and your insurance company helpful information this morning francis thanks a lot 
<laughs> okay, Betty. Appreciate love it. your show. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So there you go. If you want to update your vaccine record and you need a paper copy sent out to you, the number to dial is 1-833-951-3859. And, of course, for all things related to police matters and reporting tools, rnc.gov.nl.ca. <clears throat> Very quickly. So via email, and Jenny's asked the same question on Twitter, is do we know why the owners of the home that have installed these extraordinarily bright lights, why they've done it? And has anybody asked them? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think I've ever heard from the homeowner as to why they've chosen to install those types of lights and their reaction to how the neighborhood is reacting to them. But that's an interesting part of the story that I guess we should explore. You know, the thought has been in some corners. Uh, actually, I'm not going to let the rumor mill uh, carry that one. But I will indeed see if that homeowner would like to speak to why. And why not take them down, given the reaction that they're getting from virtually everyone within eye shot, which is an awful long range from where those lights are. Okay, let's see. Uh, thanks for that, Jenny, on the Twitter. And Brian's telling me to slow down. Am I talking too fast today? Maybe. That's kind of my thing, though, right? Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to have you on the show to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, something that I noticed myself, and now I've got a couple of uh, emails and some pictures attached to it, about people post the fact they're out skating on the ponds. So I don't know who's checking the ice, but the one pond close by where I go for a walk, there's absolutely... No chance that it's safe. Uh, I heard that click in my ear, Dave. There's no chance that that pond is safe for skating. So it used to be when we were young, it would be the fire department, by and large, would come across it because I live very close by Kent's Pond. And the Kent's Pond Fire Hall, they'd come out and we see them out there. They'd be checking the ice. Now, I don't know if that was their mandate or that was something they were obliged to do or something they just did for public safety matters. But hopefully someone has taken upon themselves to check the various ponds before you get out there and skate on because the one that I walk around and that's Kent's I can't imagine that that's safe I just can't see it being safe but anyway just try to be careful and be mindful before you go for a spin on the blades on the pond let's go to line one Bill you're on the air how you doing doing okay you uh, just going to, I, I just heard your safety thing and uh, uh, I'll, I'll avoid this uh, um, I, I fancy myself happy said that uh, judging our safety and if you end up in the water there's a few videos out there uh, YouTube uh, uh, but uh, my, my purpose of my call is, the, uh, is to respond to Francis about her uh, reporting there and she on the website okay I recommend against it okay why is that uh, because it, it goes in a queue, et cetera, et cetera, and I, I'm, I'm sure, because your memory is good, uh, I'm sure you remember a while ago I was having an incident in uh, in St. John's building a fence, and I was probably a little wound up uh, figuring out what to do with difficult neighbors. You remember this one? I do so. Yeah, and uh, anyway, long story short, fence is built, uh, city inspectors satisfied, blah, 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 and uh, currently dealing with a, uh, a constable from the RNC because I just stood in the ground. It's all I did. did not, there's absolutely nothing to uh, uh, to, to make me uh, 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 against the law, for lack of a better term. 
and uh, but uh, the the recommendation first was to fill out the online blah blah blah, and I chose not to. I went down to uh, what was the name of the street, Military Road. Just off Military Road. Well, I'm not sure what street we're talking about off Military. There, where were the RG offices? Oh, in Fort Townsend. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Parade Street. Parade Street. That's the word I was looking for. Okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, and I actually felt bad for the desk sergeant when I went down there. I was like, listen, I just want to file this because I know there's something coming. And uh, he uh, forcefully, for lack of a better term, recommended I go to the website. I said, nope, I'm not doing it. I want to fill out the paperwork and... In long story short, I I didn't I I didn't do anything uh, that I could be criminally responsible for and whatnot. But uh, an R, uh, later after that, an RNT investigation started because I just stood my ground. I was like, listen, just leave me alone, just leave me alone, please. And uh, if I had done the online thing, it would be in the queue behind. Uh, the the, the uh, complaint that was put in post and uh, so uh, uh, yes online business is, is a great thing these days but I totally uh, when it comes to uh, uh, local bureaucracies and government entities and especially when it comes to law enforcement go face it front on don't go filing online because it gets lost in queues. That's my advice. That's all I get to say. I appreciate the time. You know, so someone, uh, while we were speaking, sent a note about reporting online. They did exactly that. They got a response in three days, and it looks like the file has been opened for this particular collision that this gentleman was involved in. Uh, I appreciate the call this morning. Bill, nothing else before we say goodbye? Yeah, no, well, as for a collision and something, yeah, that, that, that's fair play, but when when when, you're, when there's a dispute or something like that, uh, I, I totally recommend against it. But may, maybe for, like like you said, a collision kind of thing, as insurance anyway, I wouldn't go. I, I had a collision uh, a few years ago that was totally blatantly the other person's fault. Uh, they ran red light and whatnot. And because I, I, I heard you say uh, the, the, a certain dollar amount, and uh, you, you are right, legislatively, that is correct. But there was never an RNC report. The insurance dealt with it. It was her fault. She owned it. So the, no, neither one of us ever went to the RNC because uh, that, that, it was in the city. And uh, and the last thing I'll finish off with, uh, Patty, any good at sharpening the chainsaw? At sharpening a chainsaw? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I spent a couple of winters in the bush. Yeah, well, I spent a couple of winters in the bush cutting windfall and fire load uh, in Jasper National Park, and we were responsible for our own saws throughout the winter, so I know how to do it. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to get good at it. What, what's your best recommendation when you strike a nail or something like a rock or something? Because a, a new ch- chains are expensive, right? And uh, when, when you strike a nail, I'm, I think I'm half decent at it. 
But uh, when you strike a nail, what's your what's your or something solid like a rock? What's your best recommendation? Well, at some point, there's there's no way you can resharpen uh, with your own handheld file, your own circular little file. There's no way you can sharpen out some of the bucks that you might see if you hit a nail or hit a rock or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. But there's mm-hmm. professionals out there that if you have something that's so damaged that your own handheld circular file can't deal with, you have to bring it to someone who can do it professionally and maybe have a tooth replaced. Uh, where, where did they get them done here? Uh, I, where did I last guy? I used to deal with a fellow, but he moved to New Brunswick. He did all, lots of small inch repair, outboards, chainsaws, that kind of stuff. Um, so let me see if I can find someone for you. I'm genuinely curious. Yeah, no, I'm fair. I'm curious now, too. Uh, St. John's. St. John's. All right. Uh, quality equipment repair, CNC and cycle. Oh, here's a good one. His cock rentals. That's where I'd go, I think. Hiscock Rental. Yeah, right there on Water Street. Teddy, you have a good, you have a good day. You too. All the best. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it's funny. Can I, I have sharpened a chainsaw many, many times. Uh, yeah, those were long days, man, working in the bush, cutting up the fire load and the windfall just to uh, try to deal with the potential for forest fires, and it was a big deal in the National Park. There was lots of action like that, and, of course, lots of rules, given the fact it was a National Park about what you can and cannot do, where you can and cannot cut, or what you can cut. So, anyway, yeah, if you buck a rock or a nail to the point where you need a repair or a replacement of a tooth, you're not going to be able to do it yourself, a little handheld file. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with you. The topic, well, I'll find out when we come back from the newscast. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Well, since the chainsaw call, amazing to me what piques people's interest. It's fantastic. So apparently there's another place uh, for that fellow who might need some professional sharpening or repair of his blade and his pool and 12-inch. Uh, Capital Blade, Ashford Drive, Ashford Goss. We got his number two if you need a hand. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Tops of Paradise. He's the Shadow Minister of Health and Community Services. That's Paul Din. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and Happy New Year to you. You too. I uh, I was listening to your show yesterday and listened to that uh, that fine fella, uh, Mr. Din, <laughs> speaking yesterday on the recruitment. Yeah. And, of course, I saw the, uh, saw the headline today on the paramedic strike, but it just... Just brought me to uh, to call in on on what's happening in healthcare and 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 this in spe- specifically this uh, Ireland recruitment uh, uh, trip, which is their second done by government. And uh, you know, I don't have an issue with uh, with going ahead, to, going overseas to recruit and that. But right now, I look at the government uh, currently, and there's there doesn't seem to be a huge focus or a real focus on on the issues here at home and trying to manage what's happening here there's there's a number of things that are being done you know and uh, yes they're going to uh, going to come up with some results but but there's absolutely no plan in terms of setting benchmarks or setting targets or how do you judge your success uh we we uh, the ministers come out the past minister and the current minister and talked about how we're on par, you know, on par, and the same as other provinces, and in the same breath we'll, we'll acknowledge that that uh, everyone across the country and globally are facing the same issues. So, you know, we need to be better than just on par, you know, when it comes to competitive wages and the like. And we have other Atlantic provinces that are coming here and recruiting our graduates, our graduates, before before our government really has a chance to say hello, or, and they should be in there from day one. 
and they should be. Uh, there should be a program, call it Retention 101 or, or whatever, but government should be in there uh, on a regular basis speaking to our healthcare graduates. Uh, and it's not happening, you know, and we're going, going overseas and uh, recruiting and doing what we can over there. And, you know, I listened to the minister uh, last week, actually. He was on, I think, uh, on target with uh, Linda Swain. And and he tosses around words such as, you know, we're, we're having significant success and tremendous success in India and that. Well, well how is that success measured? How is it, you know, what, what, what did they go over to expect and where are they? And here we are uh, with no strategic plan that sets out exactly what's happening. Uh, Linda, I believe, asked the minister last week too. Uh, you know, uh, you know, well, why, why are our healthcare workers not leaving? Why are they not staying here? And the minister's response was, and I, I stand to be correct, but it was something along the lines of, it's "Hard to put your finger on any one item." But this is the same government that spoke to ongoing exit interviews that would provide reliable information and help us attract and retain our, our uh, health care professionals. So that gives me no level of confidence when, when the minister responsible tells you, you know, he can't put his finger on why, why uh, our health care workers aren't staying here. Uh, so, I mean, we really got to start looking at what's happening here in this province and how we can how we can uh, find out why they're not staying. And, uh, and we can toss around some. I mean, the obvious is, is the work-life uh, uh, balance. You know, that's a big one. Uh, you know, the pay is another big one. And, uh, you know, there's others there. But, I mean, if you're, if you're not doing exit interviews, then you're not going to know. Uh, precisely what's happening and uh, I look at this and you look at our paramedics now the situation they're in you know again there's reports were done on this Grant Thornton did a report back in 2018 on wages and and issues within the paramedics and and our emergency responses and there's been no no activity Uh, we cannot be waiting with the calls I get on a regular basis of individuals that are in dire straits in our health care, and here we are going on a second junket over to uh, to uh, Ireland, where we've had absolutely no indication of how how the first one went, other than, oh, it was great, it was tremendous, it was significant. I mean, that's not what we want. Government should be here into the schools here in this province on a regular basis, sitting down with, with uh, our graduates and coming up with offers that, and find out what, what would keep them here. And it's not happening. You know, and there's, and, you know, you talk about solutions, Patty. You know, we've offered solutions. And, you know, I've, I've gone and I've looked at uh, other provinces, what they're doing. And most of what we're doing is what they're doing. You know, despite the Premier saying, oh, others are cutting and pasting from us. They're not. It's a lot of the same. It's a lot of the same. But, you know, if, if you looked at non-emergent, increase in non-emergent uh, uh, transportation here in the province, that would help uh, the uh, the load on our, our paramedics and that. If you looked at, I mentioned continuous glucose monitoring, the, the effects they would have in the savings in health care. If you talk about child care for our health care workers that would offer shift, shift coverage in the night, I talked to a parent yesterday who called uh, her daughter doing nursing here in the province, doing nursing, uh, didn't uh, get the passing grade in one of her courses. That young nurse has to wait another year to do that course. Why are we not looking at these issues to get our, uh, our professionals through quicker and in the system quicker? It's, this is not rocket science. And, 
You know, the runoff to Ireland, that's great. But, Paddy, the other thing about, about uh, immigration and bringing people in, that's great. Uh, I dealt with immigration in the past. I handled that file. Uh, and the three letters that are most prominent when you talk immigration was MTV. And that was because most of the people you bring in uh, through immigration eventually end up in Montreal, Toronto, or Vancouver. You know, you've got to create the environment here to keep them. And and if you can't create it for your own, how are you going to create it for those coming in? Well, I, I would imagine, you know, so there's a lot to the uh, different angles you took there. Yeah. The... You know, if you build it, they will come. There's a reason why newcomers to the country end up in certain cities. is because there's a pocket of pop, a population of similars, people from the same country of origin or the same religion or the same part of the world. But that's an evolutionary thing. So the more that come here, just based on math, the yep. more that will stay because they'll have a community that shares their languages and traditions and religions and practices and all that kind of stuff that goes to having a place that you want to stay because you feel welcome. So I think it all works a bit hand in glove, and it takes time to establish that. You know, there wasn't just a flip a switch overnight, and all of a sudden there was a huge pocket of Pakistanis in Mississauga, right? Yeah. So those things take time. Back to healthcare specifically. I mean, I, until I'm blue in the face some days, the issue about the very first time that your application is approved to be taught in any of the healthcare disciplines in this province, registered nurses, LPNs, nurse practitioners, social workers, pharmacists, doctors, day one, when you hit the chair, you have contact information with the recruiter, ongoing conversations about opportunities and locations where we desperately need your services. Absolutely. And I don't know why we don't do that. I know we do some of it, but I'm not so sure how aggressive it is. And the exit interview is key. If there's a doctor that was willing and wanting to practice on Bell Island or on Fogo Island and didn't because of the inflexibility of the health authority, let's understand why. If someone's leaving because they've got an opportunity with themselves and their spouse to move to Halifax, okay. If it's because of relationship with the health authority, all right. If it's about pay, fine. If it's about work-life balance, at least we'll know so that when we draft the next package to recruit, it will include retention measures because we've understood why you left. So I'd love to speak with Dr. Megan Hayes, and I, I should really try to reach out to her personally, see if she can come on, just to see where she is, because she's got the most difficult job in the province. It's not Minister Osborne, and it's not the Premier, and it's not you, and it's no. not me. It's her, because there's so many of the ills and woes that people feel in the province are going to rest on her shoulders. She's the new Deputy Minister of Recruitment and Retention of Healthcare Workers. So how we factor in the exit interview and reasons as, as to why he left will absolutely be 100% important in creating the next recruitment tool because recruiting someone to work in St. Yeah. John's is vastly different than recruiting someone to work in Gander or Burgio or St. Anthony or Happy Valley Goose Bay. So, you know, those are all important parts of it. No, those are good points, Patty. And and just, uh, you know, with the immigration piece, as you talked there, you know, there's groups here. The Association for New Canadians is a good group that uh, do a lot of work for immigration and, and trying to develop welcoming communities. You know, and that becomes a big issue there. And of course, it's not just bringing in that professional. It's the, the, the partner and the family Family that come with them, so so trying to create that environment where they're uh, they feel uh, feel at home basically. But uh, you know, w with regards to the uh, to the uh, healthcare, uh, we we're just not doing enough. Government is not doing enough to to uh, for lack of a better word, romance our own uh, graduates, our own applicants for, to stay here in the province. And whether that be you know increase in pay or whether it be uh, you know uh, other other benefits, uh, it's not happening. There's 
you know, the Premier got up in the House uh, there at the last sitting and talked about, oh, well, we've been over and we met with the nursing graduates. And I'm surprised it didn't come, come to news then. But, I mean, I had a couple of calls from those graduates. And they said, well, they came in, they, we were allowed to ask three questions, and they went on their way again, and never to be heard of again. You know, that's, that's, not, how you, that's not how you sell a province or promote what we have to ask, and especially when you're promoting it to your own, let alone going over to Ireland and trying to promote it. So, you know, we got to create that rapport. People have to feel like they're needed. You know, as I said to you many times before and others, you know, in the groups I've met with and I'm doing it again now this month, uh, most of them talk about the lack of respect, you know, and you got to feel valued. you got to feel wanted. And I, I can tell you from the calls I get, these people are needed needed here in this province you know and i look at the paramedics now as a good example uh, that's uh, you know top of mind today you know there's been reports put out there that talked about the issues within the paramedic and uh, area and there's been nothing done and and here we are on the verge of a strike and i do i do appreciate all the work that our healthcare workers do and our paramedics and that they're they're doing this with as little disruption to the service as they can because they're in a profession that they want to be in and want to care for people but yet these are people that will never see freedom 55 because they'll be burnt out well before that so we really got to start uh, knuckling down and doing what we can for our people here uh, who are struggling and the, and the, and the students that want a job here it's, it's just not happening yeah i find there's i mean I, there are a little bit different things for me when we come to this particular job action with the teamsters local because that's not a direct government involvement now government has created the different landscape between yep. private and public offerings of ambulance services and you know if the only movie made in recent past is to amalgamate air and ground into one dispatch that's just a baby step so Unlike the government's dealing with the public sector employees who are ambulance operators, dispatchers, and paramedics, that's one thing. But when you have a private sector employer, and in this case, fewers, I don't know what role government plays here other than to do away with the disparity or the disconnect between the two. Yeah, no, and I agree. I agree. I mean, you can't insert yourself into a, to a labor dispute or a collective bargaining process or whatever. But when you see reports that come out that talk to, you know, differences in wages or differences in time or hours, and you have legislation there such as Labor Standards Act, there's, there's some things you can do to make make it better for all. And, of course, through the Health Accord, there, you know, we're, we're working, our government will be working, I suspect, towards amalgamating the whole works in, at summer, sometime. But at the end of the day, you see this, this coming. And there's opportunities, to, in my mind, to to help uh, avoid this, right? Without without totally inserting yourself into the process. And uh, you know, here we are. And I commend you know all that are trying to work towards this. But we we certainly don't need this now. I mean, just the, the increase in anxiety levels for individuals who who want to call an ambulance now has certainly gone up. All the, you know, despite the fact that the uh, the ambulance workers are saying they'll you know our. our uh, people needing it won't see a difference but uh, it still does create some anxiety for people no doubt about it no doubt appreciate the time this morning thanks paul thank you patty all the best you too bye-bye yep. bye-bye all right uh, quick one before we get to the break let's go to three bill you're on the air hey patty uh, i didn't mean to get on twice today uh your producer is that awesome oh. no, uh, I, I, I heard you uh, two questions uh or one question and a comment sure. uh you offered another service besides his his cox yeah, Capital Blade, Ashford Drive, Mount Pearl, Gus. 
Okay, uh, now I was talking to Sterling at Hiscox right after we got off the phone, and I must say he impressed. I think he's going to teach me something. But you made the comment about a, a, a 12 pooling or something? Uh, I was just a wisecrack about a, a chainsaw. Uh, yeah. I have a 12 inch pooling. And, and, and you offended me, and I had to call back. I'm running an 18 inch uh, Husky 445. My deepest condolences. <laughs> I'm sitting here sharing her now, but uh, I'm going to go to Hiscox first because uh, Sterling was. Uh, he, uh, I think the man's going to teach me something. Good. But uh, yeah, you, I didn't mean to get back on the air. Your, your producer uh, sent me here, and uh, God love me, he's as good as gold. But uh, yeah, you're pulling. You, you caught me. My, my first chainsaw when I was 20 some odd, which uh, I guess that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, all right, have a great day. You too, all the best. Bye. Take care, bye-bye. Yeah, I wasn't to uh, dismiss, you know, you could be running the biggest kind of industrial unit, I don't know, it was just a 12-inch pool out. It was a bit of an inside joke between my, me and my buddies. Uh, anyway, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking ice safety. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of Avalon Trailways. That's Rick Noseworthy. Hi, Rick, you're on the air. Good morning, Teddy. How are you? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? I'm doing all right, boy. I just uh, uh, hope I don't get into a coughing fit. I'm a little bit under the weather. I had the flu shot last week, and it worked. I got the man flu all week, so uh, you're with me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, it's it, it, terrible stuff. But uh, hey, I wanted to weigh in uh, interesting show this morning from Chainsaws to Ice Safety, so it gets fellows like me all excited. My, my saws at Hiscox now because uh, you can't cut side with them, apparently. But... Uh, um, on with the, the ice safety, you know, there's a lot of good points being made. And I don't think Newfoundland is any different. But the Avalon Peninsula, uh, you know, where I do a lot of ATVing and ice activities, you know, we are a little bit different. And it's I think it's the way that we make the ice here on the Avalon. You know, with days like, you know, 6 degrees and then minus 10 and minus 12 and, and then a bit of rain and a bit of snow, uh, we tend to make ice in layers, and, you know, you see all these charts that are out there that are, you know, people post about, you know, four inches you can do this, and eight inches you can do this, and 12 inches, you know, you can ride your truck on it and all this. Like, that doesn't really pertain to us. So, like, in the perfect world, those charts might be good, but every lake, every body of water is different, and that's probably why uh, we don't see... Uh, uh, the fire department or anybody checking, uh, you know, the, for the ice anymore. Because, like, if they check on a place like Kent's Pond, you know, that's no indication of what the ice could be like, say, on Ocean Pond or Gull Pond or something like that. And, you know, they're, they're probably sending out a, a false sense of security. Well, absolutely. <clears throat> one body of water is just one body of water. Exactly that, no more, no less. I mean, it has a lot of things to do. How deep the pond may be, the type of uh, warm springs that are in it, the amount of rivers running in and out, out of it, which all leads to uh, ice thickness uh, ramifications. So, yeah, you can check Kent's Pond, but that doesn't even mean Kenny's Pond, which you can throw a rock from Kent's to Kenny's, doesn't mean Kenny's is safe either. So, you know, everybody's got to be checked individually. Yep, and, you know, the, the plan is, you know, if you're going to go on the ice, uh, plan that you're going through it. You know, dress appropriately. Like, wear a life jacket. And it might sound dumb, you know, see you fell out on the, you know, on the ice with a life jacket on, but, you know, plan for it, you know. Um, a lot of times, you know, if you go through the ice, you, you're not, you know, help is probably 45 minutes an hour away, if at all. Because, you know, once you're in the in the water, 
you know, making a phone call or getting out is, is going to be, it's going to be tough. You know, wear a life jacket, you know, wear a set of ice picks, you know, take someone with you. And like in my world of the ATVs, you know, we recommend to stay off them all together because an ATV does not handle an ice like a snowmobile. And, you know, it's never a safe practice and is never designed as a safety technique, but a snowmobile can skip water in certain situations. You know, I don't recommend, oh, you know, go on thin ice because we can skip water. But, you know, we've all seen the videos of what a snowmobile can do, you know, with the torque when, you know, flat out, it's momentum plus the track. You know, they can get out of a bit of trouble. An ATV does not have that ability. No, it's basically just a rock. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's always worthwhile understanding what you're getting yourself into when you bring any of your off-roaders, skidoos or otherwise, anywhere towards a pond, or even if you're just out for a skate or a walk, whatever the case may be. Watching a video about how to get yourself out of that predicament is probably going to be very helpful because it might happen to you. Number one, and I've gone through this because, you know, mom and dad used to be pretty high on this stuff because we had the had the sleds and that kind of stuff and I was skating on the pond. First things first, wherever you went in, don't try to get out there. That's the first thing you have to consider. Beyond keeping calm because it's hard because of the shock of the cold and they're just afraid of going through the ice, but don't try to crawl out exactly where you broke through. Go to the other side number one there's inevitably going to be some air collected in your clothes if you can use that by putting your arms outstretched on the ice and try to kick your legs until you get your torso up on the ice as opposed to just trying to clamber and grab and scratch and and swing at the ice so go to the other side opposed to where you went in put your arms out flat hopefully that bit of air can help float your torso a little bit and kick your legs there's the only few ways if you don't have something like a nice pick or something handy there's just a couple of ways that if you watch a couple of helpful videos might be the difference between freezing to death and drowning and getting out yeah patty like there's little things you know like when we go out and we teach this you know you got to have a plan in your head now because when you're in the water it's too late for a plan it's you know when the adrenaline kicks in and you're terrified and fighting for your life you don't think clear you know i hear it all the time of the 110 one rule like when you go through the ice you got one minute to get your breathing under control you got 10 minutes of useful time. And like 10 minutes is not a lot of time. And after that, you know, you cramp up, you get too cold, you get exhausted. And of course, you know, that 10 minutes, that might only be four minutes for a guy my age or, you know, my physical condition. You know, that might work on, on a tuned athlete at 25. But, you know, it's all generalities. And like, you know, maybe you don't have 10 minutes. But when you get out, they say the, the other one is you got an hour to get warm. If not, you're in serious trouble again. So, you know, that's all things you got to think about. Like, if you go through the ice on the Salmon Airline, you know, depending on where you're to, you're not going to get the warmth in an hour. You know, it's so many factors involved. And, like, a life jacket, uh, you know, right now you can buy lots of uh, snowmobile clothing that floats you. You know, give yourself as many chances as you can because, you know, once you're in the water, your chances are going to be limited. So, you know, take the things you need. You know, sometimes people go through the ice and the people trying to help them don't know what to do. So, you know, make a plan for yourself. If you're not going on the ice or near the ice, you know, carry a throw bag, something like that. You know, be able to help someone without putting your own life in danger. But it's something that you have to plan for. 
Absolutely. I mean, well-laid plans can be the difference between lost and found, dead or alive. And not to be dramatic, but that's the reality when we talk about going through the ice because it is an absolute panic. Uh, I've gone through the ice before. Thankfully, it was just in uh, what we called uh, Sandy Bottoms there in Kent's Pond. It wasn't deep enough to really be uh, a real fright or a real danger, but enough to get wet up to the knees. And even that, knowing that I was going to be fine, I was scared to death for that brief second. So you can only imagine if you go through where your skates or your boots don't hit the bottom and all of a sudden you're trying to uh, scamper or clamber your way out. So make a plan, know what the risks are, and plan for them. Uh, Good to have you on, Rick. Anything else you want to say this morning? No, thanks for the opportunity, Patty. Uh, You know, we only got to... You know, get the word out. You know, we save one. It's well worth the effort. But please, for everybody, you know, keep it in mind. Not just for yourself. You know, you're leaving a family behind. You're risking the lives of people who are coming to get you. Just, you know, before you go on the ice, we're not saying not go on it because, you know, people are going to do it. Just have a plan. You think your actions because everybody's accountable. So, once again, thanks for the time. And hopefully we'll have a safe winter. Appreciate your time this morning, Rick. Take care. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Okay, bye-bye. Rick really is the president of Avalon Trailways. Time for a break. When we come back, Annette's there to talk about the noose, no, the noose, the nurse recruitment uh, opportunities in Ireland. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's go to line number two. Annette Boyle, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Happy New Year, and I wish you the best for 2023. The very same to you. Keep up doing the good work that you're doing. I just have a couple of comments that I might want to make about this trip to Ireland. Sure. One time, we learned in our history books that Newfoundland was the crosswords of the world. Well, right now, there's not a thing direct coming to Newfoundland. And I've traveled to Ireland several times when they had that direct flight on. And you could get to Ireland or to the U.K. quicker than I got to British Columbia over Christmas. Oh, absolutely. There it's a no terrible loss. no direct flights. It's ridiculous. And you know something? Government and university and tourism have done very little about it. Um, government are aware of it. They got to be. University, a young teacher was coming over from Ireland not past number of years to teach Irish. I've had several of them here at my house for a meal or whatever. And the big thing is, I don't know how I'm going to get home Christmas because it was so difficult to get from here to Ireland when it should only take about four hours, less than it does to go from Victoria, B.C. to Toronto. Well, it can take you a full 24-hour day to get from Victoria to St. John's. I've experienced that. The loss of that flight is interesting conversation because when it was first introduced by WestJet, the seat count, the tickets sold, went up year over year. So when we lost the flight, people just were, you know, they tell me all the time, why am I wasting my breath on this? They just throw their arms in the air. It's a business decision. It was a business decision based on how aggressive Stanfield International Airport was in Halifax, where that flight is now housed, or their home for that flight. So there are things we can and should be doing so whether it be recruiting healthcare professionals or attracting new business investment and or tourism or whatever the case may be access and frequency of flights and price point is absolutely one of the determining factors that people use so we should be super aggressive in trying to reintroduce some of these flights this week we lost our direct flight to halifax with WestJet. yeah we're becoming very isolated now our out our out of city places are isolated anyway god bless them they can't get and get an ambulance in some places 
and 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 that too is terrible. Another thing too, this twelve-hour shift bit with nurses, that's to be questioned a bit, because that's now what co- what's causing the burnout. And if these young people or older people are going to come here and know that burnout is in capital letters wherever they're going to work until things really change and they're not going to change overnight 12 hours is a long time to have to work and probably be asked to stay on I know young people who have been and they find it very difficult very very difficult well no doubt they do of course and you know I mean who really works 12 hours without a break and it gets worse. Some of the shifts may yeah. extend to as many as 24 hours on site. Now, you're not on your feet for every minute of 24, no, but no opportunity to go home and to collect your thoughts or get a break or have yeah. a, a proper bite to eat and see your family yeah. becomes an awful arduous task. It wouldn't be for me. And, not, and the, only, the other point that really made me smile was, why are 11 people gone over at a quarter of a million dollars now the only good thing that's going to come out of that is they're going to see unless they rented a plane they're going to see how difficult it is to get there (laughs) they really are and you know what I really hope they do I really hope they find it really difficult because uh, they got to know they got to get in touch with reality they're not in touch with reality and Osborne can come on and say oh we're like Ireland we're not like Ireland we're different altogether. We're different people. Yeah, I mean, I guess I get the cultural overlap somewhat, even though I think it's a bit of an exaggeration to say exactly. we're just like Ireland. Exactly. Yeah. It's a big exaggeration. So these are the things I just wanted to bring up. You know, and uh, half of it stemmed when, you know, I, I haven't been in touch with... And another thing, the young teachers that came here to teach Irish for the year found it very difficult to find a place to stay. Oh, no doubt. Very difficult. And uh, like I said, government and university and tourism got to work together. And if they worked together, there would not be a problem to get people to come. Now, another thing, too, is you're talking different money when you're talking Ireland or the U.K. or here. Okay? So if our dollar is down, forget it. (laughs) They're not going to come. Yeah, well, when you compare our dollar to anybody, whether it be the American, which is the benchmark, and or the euro, and or the pound, then we find ourselves in a not very attractive situation. But access is going to be an important consideration. It just absolutely is. Yeah, no doubt is. about it. It's the big thing. So I, I just wanted to make these points, that's all. I don't mean to sound like an old grump, but the uh, uh, transportation is the, is the thing. I mean, it, it really is. You know, if you can, if you, if you're here working and you're going to have uh, two weeks off in the summertime or whatever, and you want to get home to a place like Ireland or the UK uh, for a while, and it, it, you look at what you got to go through to go and come back, I don't know if it's worth it. They can get jobs in other places much easier. Yeah, I mean, we went to England over the summer. And to fly to Halifax, to have to fly right back over your own home yeah, exactly. is frustrating. Yeah, it is. That it is. Yeah. 
Anyway, Patty, thanks for uh, giving me a listen. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Say hello to the family for me. I'll Annette. do that. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, just before we go to the break, so we were talking ice safety and, you know, trying to get out of it if you fell through the ice into the freezing cold water. Someone just sent me a picture of a tool which will be, he says, a game changer. Absolutely right. So if you're so inclined and you or someone belongs to you, finds himself out on the ice, out for a skate, walking, on the skidoo, on their quad, whatever the case may be, this is called a Celsius Ice Escape Life Preserver. Write that down. Celsius, C-E-L-S-I-U-S. Celsius Ice Escape. It's a life preserver. And here's what it looks like. It's got two orange plastic handles with two spikes, one in each handle. They're connected with what looks like very similar to a phone cord, for instance. It's $9.99. It would be a godsend if with the stress and the panic of going through the ice and being in the water if you had these that tool with the spike on the end to help pull yourself out for the sake of nine dollars and 99 cents and this person found it it looks like maybe it came from amazon but anyway it's called a celsius ice escape life preserver let's take our final break of the morning don't go away Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks out in Mount Pearl, Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, yes, Patty. Uh, I guess um, I was listening to my colleague earlier, uh, Paul Dean, uh, on talking about the uh, health care challenges, and there's no doubt that we have uh, an awful lot of them. Um, I, like Paul, and I'm sure all members uh, of the House Assembly continue to be bombarded with calls from uh, constituents, whether that be issues around uh, uh, long waits at the emergency, uh, uh, the emergencies, uh, or lack of family doctors, or issues with the walk-in clinics, collaborative care clinics, you name it. Uh, um, and there's an awful lot of horror stories that, that you're hearing out there. Uh, one issue that uh, you were talking about possible solutions, and one thing that I did bring to uh, Minister Osborne's attention there uh, in the fall, and, I, and you and I talked about it actually, and I just wanted to put it out there again because I do believe the minister, I, I believe when they announced the new St. Clair's, he brought it up. I, I stand to be correct on that, but I'm sure I've heard him sort of commit publicly to this idea, and that is around childcare. And I continue to hear from a lot of uh, people uh, working in the healthcare system, whether they be doctors or nurses uh, or just other healthcare workers, other disciplines. And I actually heard from one this morning. And that was the big issue. The issue was access to childcare. So I, I think the minister may have said, I'm not putting words in his mouth, certainly that's what I suggested to him. I think he had publicly committed to the idea that we would be looking at <clears throat> perhaps putting some child care facilities either on site or near site uh, in our uh, in in our you know our main hospital settings, whether it be the health science, St. Clair's, whatever the case might be. I think that's something that uh, could be done uh, and should be done uh, in order to try to um, <clears throat> help us in the recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. Child care is a big issue. We talk about money, we talk about incentives, we talk about all those things, but at the end of the day, if you are a person, particularly a younger person, younger family, and you don't have anybody to, to care for your child, we can put all the incentives we want in place. Uh, if they got no, if there's nowhere they can go uh, to put their child, uh, 
when it comes to child care services. So I would just sort of renew my sort of, uh, I guess, call and put that out there again in the new year, uh, that that's something that I really think the government needs to uh, look at doing sooner rather than later. Well, childcare is, look, it's a massive conversation. Whether or not we're talking about the fact that the death rate doubles the birth rate in this province, immigrants staying, young families growing, or people considering leaving and what uh, childcare looks like on their checklist if you're a young family. It's great that the province, in my opinion, it's great that the province and the federal government are moving forward with their roadmap to $10 a day daycare. It makes all the sense in the world to me. I don't have small children. I don't need daycare. But if you look at any of the research done where they've made it accessible and affordable, then it's got a big uptick for the economy. GDP growth, people getting back to the workforce, families growing, whatever people want to add to it for the importance. But when you've got the issues surrounding early childhood educators, their training, their rate of pay, accessibility, because there's a difference between living in a big urban setting like I do when you have regulated versus unregulated, in-home, small offerings, big offerings, institutional offerings, and there's all of these concerns. And especially if you talk about a child under the age of two, it's fine to tell me it's 10 bucks a day, but if I can't find a spot, it doesn't matter how much it is. Exactly right. And that's where uh, it's so important within government that, uh, you know, when we're talking about different departments and so on, they can't be working in silos because the, the, the solutions to a lot of the problems that we have in government are going to cross numerous government departments. You cannot just look at one particular area and say, what do we do to fix it? So, like I say, in this particular case, and I know there's child care, by the way, there's people struggling with child care that are not health care workers, too. I'm not being dismissive of their needs because those are very real as well, and I hear from those people as well. Sure. But if we are trying to deal with uh, recruitment and, and retention of healthcare workers, which we desperately need, I think everybody agrees, that's probably the number one issue uh, for most people in this province right now, then a significant piece of the puzzle, especially if you are looking for young recruits and so on, is going to be, not just the cost of childcare, the availability. This particular person reached out to me this morning and said, look, I don't care. Like, you know, I will begrudgingly pay 50 or 60 bucks a day or whatever i got to pay. Uh, I'd love to be able to avail of $10 a day, but if I got to, I'll pay the 50 or 60 or whatever, but I just cannot get a spot. I am, I, I am, I am exempt from the work. I am a healthcare professional who is exempt from the workplace. I could be part of the solution, but I have nowhere I have no child care for my child, and that's preventing me from helping fix the problem. So, uh, you know, it's important that uh, Minister Osborne obviously work with uh, the Minister of Education, Early Childhood Learning and uh, Care, and, uh, and any other ministers they need to look at and realize that you cannot operate in silos, and these big issues are going to cross numerous departments in many cases, and there's no one thing that you need to do. It's a multi-pronged approach that needs to be taken. Yeah, I think everyone would agree with that because, you know, the recruitment tool is it's so extraordinarily wide, the array of issues that have to be addressed. And, of course, child care would come with it. If I'm a young family, of, uh, I'm a doctor, my partner or my spouse also needs a job, amenities and schools and opportunities for my children, child care or otherwise. If we don't deal with them all, and I'm sure Megan Hayes has considered all of these. Of course she has. She's a smart lady. But they've got to be front and center because what might attract me might not attract Dave Williams to come to this province to set up shop as a doctor or a nurse practitioner or whatever the case may be. Uh, I appreciate the time, Paul. Thanks for the call. 
Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, a couple of quick ones before we run out of time. Let's go to line number two. Margaret, you're on the air. Uh, uh, Patty Daly? Yep. My sister went to St. John's on Monday. Yep. She had a doctor's appointment at the, the cancer clinic on Tuesday. Yep. And uh, she had arrangements made with the social social services to get down there. They flew her down there. And she, uh, now that the doctor's seen her, that she don't have to go back till four to six weeks and get her surgery done. She's into the merch, into the uh, building into St. John's on Merchant Drive. And she can't get over to the social services. She can't get over to the doctor's office. And that's how she's there by herself. And that's how three o'clock this evening, she got no way to come up with money she, to stay there that night. And she don't tonight or, and she don't know what she's going to do. Can you tell me where she could turn to? Sure. Is she on income support? Yes, she is. Okay, there's a very specific number for folks who are on income support, and you can call it. It's right there at the Department of Health Community Service, but it's its own standalone number. So, do you have a pen? Yes, I do. Okay, so it's toll free, 1 833. Yeah. Okay. 729. 729. 6106106. Yeah, that's specifically Okay, now I don't know if she got that number, but she was trying all morning to get through to numbers that she got, and she couldn't get no one, and she's down there, and she's in a panic, and that's after 3 o'clock, she's outdoors. Okay, because that one's specifically for her. There's the, the general one that people call all the time, ends in 2412. It's hard to get an answer on that one. There's also an email address, which is a really simple one. It's MTAP, so Medical Transportation Assistance Program, MTAP, at Go. M. So it's M T A P. M T A P. And then okay. the symbol at. So M M tap at. A C T. No, so it's M T A P. M T A P. M T A P. Yeah. And so it's the symbol inside an email address called at. That's circular okay. symbol. And then it's at gov. G O V. G O V, yeah. Dot N L. Dot N L, okay. Dot C A. Dot C A, okay. All right, I'll, I'll give her a call back and see what this is going to do. Let me know. Okay, thank okay, you. Okay, Margaret, you're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye bye. Uh, last word goes to line one. Bill, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I was talking to you about a month ago. I was looking for somebody to give me a hand to shovel some snow. And I thought you might have had a list of numbers there one time. Uh, people are going around helping out the seniors. Eh? You're at Mount Pearl, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, someone and, uh, contacted I me right away said they were going to come help you. Did they? They didn't recall. I couldn't get through. I called them yesterday, and uh, I couldn't get hold of anybody. And I called the other number, and I couldn't get hold of anybody. So I'm going to have to try it again. Okay, well, give us your number, because I remember who contacted me and said they were going to help you out. So you give me your number here on the air, and I'll reach out to them and see if they can give you a call. Okay, thanks a lot. It's uh, Bill, of course, uh, 368-7542. Okay, I'll give them a shout, see what they can do. Have you got a list of uh, something like that there? I don't have a list. I just had a couple of citizens of the uh, city of Mount Pearl that when they heard your call said they would be able to help out. So I don't know what happened there, but I will call them to see if they're able to do it again. Okay, thanks a lot. No sweat, Bill.
Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, so if you're in Mount Pearl and you want to help Bill out and you can shovel him out, it's 368-7542, but I will indeed make a couple of calls. All right, we're out of time. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.